Janine Ruffalo? Janine Garofalo. Janine Garofalo, thank you. And um, I'm going to say Ian McShane, but that's not correct. Not Who plays Bilbo Baggins? And Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> uh, so, so Janine Garofalo and Bilbo Baggins. Um, oh my god. <laughs> Be ashamed of yourself. Um... Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. At least, that's what we normally do. Today, we are going to be finishing up our 100 celebration. Uh, I know technically we are now into episode 101. We got as many uh, episodes as we got Dalmatians. But truly, you all would not have wanted to listen to Pete and I rank things for four consecutive hours. Um, so we split it up into two. Really, it, it's it's for you. It, we did this all for you. <laughs> and not at all because we start recording late at night. And so therefore, four hours of talking would have been uh, real bad for us. Listen, we have jobs. <laughs> Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, uh, Martha Sullivan, library manager and... I have nothing. I have nothing clever. Kaiju enjoyer. Kaiju enthusiast. A Godzilla girl. My name is Martha Sullivan and I am a Godzilla girl. Uh, and I'm here as always with my co-host. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg. I'm a curriculum developer and uh, I also stand Godzilla. Um, as my brother said, when watching Godzilla vs. Kong, whenever Godzilla is not on screen, everyone is asking, where's Godzilla? In this house, we stand Godzilla, but we respect King Kong. Mm-hmm. Kong's, uh, Kong's a good monkey, but Godzilla's king of monsters, so. <laughs> uh, this episode is not about Godzilla versus Kong and kaiju <laughs> that, movies. That, that might be a future episode. Separate episode. <laughs> uh, but what it is about is finishing off our top 100 list of pop culture artifacts um, Pete, I vote that we skip stuck in our heads this week, since clearly for both of us, it is Godzilla versus Kong. And also <laughs> we should probably just get into this list. We skipped it I last did... week too. And that seems totally <laughs> fine. And you're right. We would just be talking about, uh, Godzilla Kong. Uh, justice for Mothra. All right. <laughs> uh, kicking off our list at number 50. Pete, what are we starting off with tonight? All right, so I have Deadwood, the HBO Western uh, that came out from 2004 to 2006, uh, cr largely created by David Milch, uh, created, produced, largely written. Um, a movie dropped, I'm going to say a year ago, but it was probably three years ago, what with, you know, uh, 2019. Okay, so like two years ago. Um Deadwood is a fictional version of the Wild West town of Deadwood in in the Dakota Territory, now modern-day South Dakota, um, and focuses on lawman Seth Bullock, played by Timothy Oliphant, and um, anti-lawman Al Swearingen, played by the best Ian McShane. A um, bunch of other people pop up. Uh, the Trials and Tribulations as the territory tries to become a state, and as the town goes from a gold boom mining town to trying to establish any amount of law and civilization here. We got Calamity Jane, we got um, Wild Bill Hickok, 
I love this show because, A, it basically introduced me to Ian McShane, whom I could have just read, like, a telephone book at me for eight hours on end because his voice is so magnificent. Um, the language is heightened Shakespearean and also has the most F-bombs per minute of any show at the time it came out and might still hold that record um, simply because... They made the decision that instead of having blasphemes, which would have been the height of swearing in 1870, they would use modern language. Um, so Al Swearingen, uh, Ian McShane, says a lot of F-bombs. Um, it's like, yeah, it, it's like Shakespeare set in the 1870s Wild West, and it's very fun and enjoyable. Uh, f especially for someone like me, where that's a lot of Venn diagrams intersecting all at once. Are you a Westerns guy? I'm low-key a Westerns guy. I don't, like, seek it out, and I don't think I'd call myself a Westerns guy. Uh, but I did just rewatch the Coen's True Grit and enjoyed myself way more than I thought I would. That one I enjoyed more on a second watch than I did in the theater. And this uh, was my second watch, and I, I thought I would enjoy myself, and then the level of enjoyment was just way higher than expected. Uh, I have never seen Deadwood. Hmm. Are you a Westerns person at all? I am, actually. Like, oh. a lot. <laughs> oh, uh, well, when you're done rewatching all the various kaiju movies, like, go throw on some Deadwood. I, yeah, it's it's one that I think that I was just too young when it was airing on HBO, mm -hmm. and I just didn't catch it at the time. This was definitely a, I watched it on DVDs in college situation, and I probably found it by browsing the college stacks and, like, saw some box sets of HBO Western show. I'm like, I'll give that a try. All right, fair. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have anything to contribute because I've never seen it. It no, sounds I mean, great. Give it a whirl, especially. I know you like Ian McShane. Have I seen him in anything except for anything else but American Gods? Um, he is the voice of Bobolinsky in Coraline, but that's not a great example because he is doing a fake, like, Eastern European accent. Um... Really, I was kind of just pushing the he's Odin in American Gods, so. Which, I mean, I only watched three episodes of that, but he was great. Yeah, uh, uh, he's apparently Blackbeard in Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, On Stranger Tides, which no one oh, needs to see. Oh, shoot! And he's, he's in John Wick, that's uh, why you know him. Um, I haven't seen that yet. You've seen no, okay. Okay, see, this is what I mean. All right, we're we're moving on. Yes. <laughs> uh, number 49, I am playing the 1993 animated perennial classic, The Nightmare Before Christmas. A perfect film. Uh, written by Tim Burton, directed by Henry Selleck, starring Danny Elfman, Chris Sarandon, and Catherine O'Hara. Um, yes, truly is a perfect movie. It is seasonal from Halloween to Christmas. Um, this movie is such an indelible part of my DNA that I remember seeing that. So in 1993, for context, I was six, uh, and I remember seeing the trailer for this movie. I don't remember where, but they use the scene where Jack pulls the lights down into his eye sockets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that as a like five or six year old <laughs> and just the impression that that made on me, um, it's great. It's it's properly spooky. The soundtrack rips. Um, In the same trailer that I also saw at approximately the same age, there's a scene where he opens the Christmas door, and that also is seared into my brain. Yes. Also, just the concept of 
like a place where you can go where every holiday lives. Like it's so good. Yes. And I have always, always, always been glad that they never made a sequel. Yes. Um, there were, I know rumblings for a while that they were going to do a follow up in one of the other, um, holiday worlds and i'm just so glad that they didn't it's perfect let it be perfect and easter before thanksgiving would have been a stupid movie oh yeah <laughs> uh yeah um, so also we are both of the age where hot topic i'm sure hot topic still sells jack skellington apparel but like we were of the age where hot topic a began and b sold jack skellington apparel I owned a t-shirt with Jack Skellington on it that said Bone Daddy. Yep. I also lived in a black hoodie with Jack Skellington's face on it. I remember that. <laughs> you can see it in many of the photos from my college days because <laughs> I never took it off. Yeah. Uh, All right, what's uh, our number 48? Yeah, number 48 on our list is a podcast, another podcast. It is Blank Check with Griffin and David. Uh, this is a movie podcast where uh, the hosts... Uh, Griffin Newman, who is an actor, and David Sims, who is a, a movie critic, a film critic for The Atlantic, um, uh, investigate directors' uh, filmographies. Um, they look for directors—I'm uh, just going to do their spiel—look uh, for directors uh, with crazy passion projects. Sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce baby. So we're talking about directors like Chris Nolan, who basically has just had checks clear— and then also directors like the Wachowskis or M. Night Shyamalan, where they get that blank check early on in their career, and then um, later, for various reasons, the checks bounce, whether because they're commercial failures or critical failures or both. Um, the episodes are very long. We're talking about two-hour podcasts, usually. There are lots of bits in it, lots of jokes and gags, but also they're both major film nerds, so I have learned an incredible amount about film um just by listening to them they have very good dynamics they always have guests on uh and the guests bring a lot to the table they're also usually film critics or actors or people you know in the world of that um and it's it's really good road trip podcasts if you're someone who listens to podcasts on road trips which i am i um, do not this is not in my rotation yet I, I, I will say that if you listen to our sister's show, Love Ya, uh, my wife Marin has frequently suggested, has frequently brought up, hey, Martha, do you listen to Blank Check? No? Okay, well, yes. Blank Check, they said, yada, 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 you should listen to it. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, but no, most of the podcasts I listen to are really smart people who are in film some way talking about film, and I love it and can't get enough, so. Oh, well, then add this to your rotation. Um, yes. <laughs> I yeah. Um yeah, sounds great. This is they, another one where I don't have anything to add because I haven't consumed it yet, but I am looking forward to it. Uh number 47, I have selected The Good Place. Mm. The was this on NBC? It was. The NBC comedy that ran from 2016 to 2020. Starring Ted Danson, Kristen Bell, William Jackson Harper, Jamila Jamil. Uh, Darcy Carden and Manny Jacinto. Uh, this movie is about a group of people who are in the good place? Question mark. Spoiler alert for I, a show that I'm pretty sure we can spoil. <laughs> we can spoil the season one twist ending of the good place. Listen, my mother is watching the show for the first time, so no. she. Yeah, got to that end. Yeah, so um, Kristen Bell plays Eleanor Shellstrop, a woman who wakes up after she dies in a place that 
Ted Danson's Michael tells her is the good place. Uh, Things start going wrong for her immediately when she realizes that the person that they think that she is, she is not, and that she may actually be in the wrong place. Uh, All of which gets upended at the end of season one when she finds out that she's actually in the bad place. And this is all an elaborate, uh, basically social experiment at torturing uh, people after they die. Um, The cast is incredible. It is one of the best illustrations for like long form character growth I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, this is a show about how we need other people. Well, it is a show about how we are all better, made better by other people. Um, yes. It is about how we as a society can improve each other and ourselves if we decide that it's worth it to work at it, um, it is such a bizarre, it is so bizarre that this show got made um, and that it got its full five seasons. Um, I get I, very emotional. I, 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 I'm, I, I'm frankly <laughs> astonished that it complete, like, I think it's only because it's Michael Schur and NBC and Michael Schur have such a close relationship at this point. Like he's, he's delivered enough, home, well, speaking about blank checks, he's gotten enough, like, hits in with NBC that he could like cash in his capital and make this forking amazing show, which also had the best bullshirting ways to get around swearing I've ever <laughs> forking heard. Um, it also, I think has the best series finale ever question mark. I mean, um, it's good. It's like the last season was kind of rough. It had its ups and downs for sure. Um, but the series finale episode I thought was a perfect episode of TV. It gave everyone a proper closing arc, which is what matters in a show like this. Yes. Uh, number 46 is, um, I'm putting this on here because it is ticking a lot of boxes for me. It is the, uh, what, uh, 2012's indelible summer pop banger written and sung. Uh, by Canada's Poet Laureate, not really, Carly Rae Jepsen, uh, Call Me Maybe. I have said on the show that uh, 1989 by Taylor Swift sort of got me into the idea that maybe I could be into pop music in general and um, fun music, but honestly, Call Me Maybe I think was my first. I have strong memories in 2012 of uh, driving around with some friends, listening to Call Me Maybe, and being like, this song slaps, when one year earlier I would have been like, not paying any attention. Um, also got me into Carla Rae Jemsen, who I jokingly call Canada's Poet Laureate because she's Canadian and is just an impeccable songwriter. Uh, so, yeah, th- th- this is my stand-in for both Carla Rae Jepsen and pop bangers in general. Uh, that's not true. I've uh, seen the rest of your list. Yes, no, obviously, uh, spoiler alert, 1989 <laughs> will come in later, but that's a stand-in for something else. Um... <laughs> I love this song. I love Carly Rae. I love the subgenre of pop that is women are allowed to be horny. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just, it's so good. Well, um, I, uh, the music video for this is also incredible because in 2012, it had like, it had a gay moment that was played, pun intended, very straight and like was very funny. I don't know if you've seen the music video. I have not. She's I don't. Ha- She's hanging out with her friend and is, like, making eyes at the hot guy that they're both hanging out with. And then she slips him his nu- or her number, you know, call me maybe. 
And then he walks up to her guy friend and is like, hey, hey, guy. So so she ends up getting, you know, declined because it turns out the guy she was making eyes with was not into her. Which is, a, I guess, a funny gag, but also let Carly Rae get some. Sure. But it, it was like, it's a very funny gag. Visually, it works very well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, number 45, 2018's cinematic and animated masterpiece. It was my top movie of the decade, and I stand by that. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, written by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman. Directed by Bob Hershetti and Peter Ramsey. Starring Shamik Moore as Miles Morales. Jake Johnson as... Peter B. Parker, Haley Steinfeld as Gwen Stacy, Mahershala Ali as Uncle Aaron. This cast is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, uh, Nick Cage, um, yeah, as Spider-Man as Noir. Spider-Man Noir, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It goes, it goes on and on. Catherine Hahn as Doc Ock. Um, yeah, we've we've talked about this movie a lot. Um, I think it's perfect. It the again the soundtrack slaps. The animation is wildly Incredible. innovative. Um. My question for you. Yes. I'm a little bit surprised why this is at number 45 and not further down your list. Um, So it was my top movie of the decade. Mm-hmm. And you will notice that of the movies I have left on this list, mm-hmm. none of them came out between 2010 and now. True. Um, like like you, like at the end of the day, you, you were just juggling your <laughs> list and this is where it landed. Yeah. Yeah. I, so the, the way that I put my list together is that I kind of had to go item by item and just think like, okay, compared to the stuff that's already written down, is this new thing I'm about to add, like, where do I rank it amongst these things? Right. Um, and I, cause I, I did, I spent a lot of time looking at that and because this list is nonsense and is such a mishmash of different things. Um, this is just where this one ended up. It's the, the highest movie on my list that came out in the 2010s. Um, I think that the other movies that I have on here are better or more important or more, emotionally impactful like there there is mm-hmm. something else on the things of the rest of right. my there, list there, there's a reason this got bumped up higher yeah yeah um this was one of the so uh as i believe we talked about last episode to, but to refresh viewers listeners memories we each created a list of 50 things and agreed that there could be no repeats so uh, Martha, being way more on the ball than I, uh, created her list of 50 and posted it, and so I was going off her list. I was 95% certain that Spider-Verse was on her list, but I threw it onto my initial list just in case. Um, and then when I was confirmed that, in fact, uh, <laughs> yes, obviously it was on Martha's list, uh, I took mine off easily. But I didn't really pay attention to where it was on your list, just that it was on there. Well, and I told you that I would, I would relinquish, I would have relinquished it to you if you were going to have it higher. Right, and I don't know if I would have had it higher. And also by that point, I had already come up with a different fifty, so it was all good, <laughs> and I didn't want to have to juggle anything else. Um, because that's, I mean, that's the other part of these lists that's kind of nonsense. Is that like Spider Verse is a perfect movie and could 
exist literally anywhere from now until the number one spot. Right. It's <laughs> and like, it would be. This could be in the top 10, but I'm looking at our top 10. I'm like, I don't know what I would bump from that. Exactly. Exactly. But, and but, if, was... Spider but if you had put Spider-Verse in, in your top 10, I would have been like, I don't know what I would bump for that. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it's all, there are so many variables and so many of them are subjective, but the point is that it had to be on this list. So here it is at number 45. Exactly. Um, speaking of another animated movie with almost the exact same um, uh, pedigree, uh, in the sense where I could see this being in the top 10, I could also see it being in the top 100. Uh, excellent voice cast. This is, of course, Pixar's Ratatouille, a movie that we had on this podcast within the past, I don't know, couple months or so uh, for our food episode. I, I recently, so if if listeners care or are interested, I have a Letterboxd account that you're welcome to find me at. Um, I have a ranked list of Pixar movies. It's not all the Pixar movies because I haven't seen all the Pixar movies because... The Last Dinosaur is a movie you don't care about. Real, no one has to watch The Last Dinosaur. <laughs> or Cars 3. Um, which is supposedly better than Cars 2. But okay, well, I've seen zero anyways, Cars, so... Uh, Ratatouille is my number two Pixar movie, mm. so... <laughs> Uh, and, and I know what your number one is because it's later on your list. We'll leave this as a spoiler, spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> um, I would agree. I think that Ratatouille might be my number two as well behind your number one, which again, I put on my list, but I was like, pretty sure Martha's already got this, but just making sure. Listen, um, be on the ball better and you can talk more about <laughs> No, no. I, I was very glad that we both had the same, you know, like obviously we have very similar tastes. Uh, number 43 is a graphic novel that I also that I had on my top 10 books of the decade. Uh, this is a horror anthology called Through the Woods by Emily Carroll. If you are not familiar with Emily Carroll, before she published Through the Woods, she did comics. <laughs> she did them on the internet, although I hesitate to call them web comics because typically she would do one-shot short stories. Um, that were kind of one and done instead of doing anything long format or serialized. Uh, but was really what was really brilliant about her work was is really brilliant about her work is that she really takes advantage of the format that she's working in. Mm. So like the way that you navigate through her comics, whether that's by scrolling or clicking or whatever, matters to the way that she's telling her story. Would this be like it's not a web comic; it's an internet graphic novel. There, well, I mean. The, they are comics that exist on the web. Right. Um, and so what I was when I heard that she had a collection coming out, um, I was very curious about how her formats would replicate itself in a static book. Good news, she's a genius. So her work is just as effective in print as it is online. <laughs> um, I also think that horror is a really hard genre to do in a graphic novel because you can't really do a jump scare because everything is on the page all the time. Sure. And, and but, the other, the other line in horror is it's it, the, the scariest thing is what you can imagine, but not see, but it's a comic. So you have to see it. So the good stuff is really good. And through the woods is really good. Mm. Um, her use of color is really brilliant. She uses a lot of black and white with like, one highlight color so she'll have like pages that are just black and white and then something will be blue or something will mm. be red um and they are sort of lightly fairy tale themed 
in a way that kind of feels familiar, but then also like she's telling stories you've never heard before. Um, she's yeah, it's incredible. Listen, Her, you've all, you've already right. sold me the first hit and I'm going to keep coming back for multiple points. <laughs> Cause you keep saying things that are fully up my alley. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It really, really is. Also on the Goodreads, because I just added it to my Goodreads, I see both Anya's Ghost, which was a previous homework assignment years ago on this uh, mm-hmm. show, and Nimona are both things that uh, reader, and also In Real Life, another previous um, thing on our, our show, uh, are all readers also enjoyed. Um, and the cover reminds me of the harrowing of hell a little bit, just because it's white and bit. black and red. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's she's incredible. I can't say enough good things about her. Uh, she also like lives squarely in my literary wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, every everything she does, I'm like, yes, please inject that straight into my veins. Yeah, well, I'm out of that's my Goodreads. And honestly, I should just add that to my uh, local independent bookstore. Order this for me, please. Say, and send it to me. <laughs> I would buy it. Like, who am I um, getting? I own it. There's there's enough in, like it is visually rich enough that I think it benefits from going back to peruse. Sure. Over and over. I also just like owning graphic novels because the ones that I love, I never want to give back. Hard same. My number 42 is uh, 2017's uh, Mr. Miracle Run by Tom King, uh, drawn by Mitch, uh, illustrated by Mitch. I'm going to go Gerads, G-E-R-A-D-S. Apologies for not being able to pronounce that one. Um, as we just said off air, pull one out for the Ava DuVernay, Tom King, New Gods movie that just got canceled by Warner Brothers because I guess we're just doing Snyder stuff all the time and not fun, good things. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this, none of which we have to get into right now. I'm pretty sure we're legally contracted because we do a podcast about pop culture to talk about New God or, um, Snyder Cut, but... That, won't... that would necessitate me watching it, and yeah. I still haven't decided if I'm going to do that. Yeah, I don't want to bring us down on this great graphic <laughs> novel that I love anyway, a lot. Anyway, Mr. Miracle. Yes. <laughs> um, it's about Mr. Miracle. Scott Free, born uh, the son of God, but raised in hell, uh, is kind of his line, because he was the God, the son of uh, the Allfather, who was given to Darkseid and raised in Apocalypse. And he escaped, uh, which is why he's Mr. Miracle, master escape artist. Um, but this is about just... It opens with him being incredibly depressed and having just tried to kill himself. And over the 12-episode arc, he and his partner, Big Barda, um, spoilers for this comic, uh, are grappling with both the death of the Allfather and uh, his foster brother, Orion, who was the son of Darkseid but raised uh, by Allfather, raised in heaven, Um becoming the new leader of the new gods so it's it's grappling with that and there's a new war against apocalypse and dark side uh mr miracle and big barda begin a family there's um it's it's just like it's it's perfectly capturing modern day people of our generation martha like oh we should maybe redecorate the the house we should, you know dealing with relationship dramas like oh yeah like starting a family all the rest of it and then also dealing with the larger family issues of my biological father is uh, the all-father of New Genesis, and my adopted father is Darkseid of Apocalypse, and we're still dealing with all this nonsense, too. Uh, And also depression and, you know, ennui with your life and your job and all the rest of it. Um, It's incredibly psychologically uh, complex. 
did this one come out really close to the vision book yes Tom, yeah tom king did vision uh the vision came out oh sure maybe this did come out very soon uh, I was gonna say I feel like they I feel like they were in conversation with each other. Looks like the Vision came out 2015, 2016, uh, and the Vision is about Vision starting a nice suburban life with his uh, what is robot vision? family, synthesoid. Yeah, his synthesoid wife and children. Um, so that was 2015, 2016. This came out 2017, 18. Um, yeah, so I guess they're kind of two sides of the same coin, uh, and I, I cannot talk enough good things about the Tom King Mister Miracle. No, I I remember being I remember thinking it was really impressive that Tom King had gotten to write both of these series for both Marvel and DC because mm-hmm. like I said they feel so much like they're in conversation with each other. I I cannot are... put together how close they came out. Well, I mean Guys, I, I think writers are frequently working on multiple books at a time. No, but I, I would have thought Vision came out like 2012 or something. Mm. Anyway. All right. Number 41. Um, I have placed one of my three albums on this whole list. Uh, the 1992 R.A.M. album Automatic for the People. Great album. Uh, it's a great album. It is the first album that I learned top to bottom, inside and out. I can still sing every single lyric from every single song mm. because they're brilliant. Um, it is about everything <laughs> um, it's about night swimming and also sleepy snakes it is it's also a weirdly sad album i was listening to it recently and it's even the upbeat stuff is pretty melancholy i kind of feel like anything by michael stipe is melancholy in some way or another it's a little bit sad yeah, yeah. but um i first discovered this album in eighth grade mm. um yeah, and like I said, it was the first album that I got, like, truly obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Um, it has, like, it is it is melancholy, but there's a lot of it that feels, like, 13-year-old me was like, this album understands me. <laughs> yes. Um, the, the, the problem with this album is that 13-year-olds are like, this album gets me, and 30-year-olds are like, this album gets me. <laughs> Is that a problem or is that no, a No, it's it's yeah, you're right. That's not a problem. That's that's a uh, excellent uh, validation for this album. Um yeah, but it's it's abstract enough that I think it ends up feeling relevant to almost everything, but then also has things like um Man on the Moon, mm-hmm. which is so specific. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really, I think, covers the best of what R.E.M. does for me. Like, it's got those really abstract stuff and in, like a fully instrumental number also. Yeah. Um, and then also just tells a really great story. So number 40 on our list could, I believe, easily be both in Martha and my top 10. Uh, and that it is is because it is, once again, another perfect film. Uh, it's 2001's uh, Hayao Miyazaki, Spirited Away. Uh, this won't be the only Miyazaki on our list. I don't think it... I think we had an earlier Miyazaki, and it certainly won't be our last Miyazaki. Um, I don't think we had... I don't... I think this really, is the this first. Really? This is the first. Okay. Miyazaki. All right. Um, well, Spirited Away is about uh, uh, Chihiro, a young 10-year-old girl who, uh, with her parents, goes to a 
weird abandoned theme park gets spirited away into a uh, spirit bathhouse where she uh, befriends some friends, including, uh, what's his name, Sen, uh, a, uh, a sweet boy who's also a dragon, and No-Face, a No-Face little demon guy who's a little bit misunderstood. Um, also, also a big baby who got transformed into a mouse, uh, and she deals with a couple uh, Baba Yaga types. Uh, I don't know. It's a perfect movie. It's so sweet and so gentle and so Miyazaki. And you just want to, like, wrap yourself up in it, it like a big old blanket and enjoy it. Um, Sweet and gentle are not words that I would use to describe this movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, also like Nightmare Fuel in a way. I mean, it's 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 a great movie. The, the um, train ride out to the suburbs is just so, I don't know. It is, but it's also coming on the aftermath of No Face trying to, like, eat everything. That's true, that's true. He's also misunderstood, and he's very sorry. It's very, it's very dark. It's very, I, I think it has a much more, like, very classical Grimm's fairy tale kind of feel. It feels very similar to Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, like, Chihiro is a girl who has to complete a number of tasks before she can rescue her family and get back to the real world. Like, this is a very traditional... Uh, fairy tale, specifically a very traditional like Baba Yaga yes. setup, and there um, are, it's in fact so Baba Yaga that there are two of them in this movie. There are two of them, <laughs> um, but it's pretty violent. It's pretty scary. Um, I don't know. I I love it, but I I don't know that sweet or gentle would have been words <laughs> that would have leapt I, to my mind. I might to be thinking. I might be thinking of the train ride out to the suburbs so much like that. That. That colors my impression of this movie a lot because I think that's such a, a lovely bit of Miyazaki filmmaking. Um, it is. Well, and then when Shihiro meets with um, sorry, the ha- sister... Haku is the dragon. I, I said Sen earlier, but it's Haku. Yeah, Sen is Shihiro's false name while mm-hmm. she is trying to recover her true name, her real name. Um, but yeah, when she when she goes out to visit the just the visit that she has with the the witch in the suburbs is very like nice and lovely but is coming on the heels of a very scary scene yes yes um yeah it's great it won an oscar (laughs) right i i i think we both could have we could have put this in our top tens either of us but again it just got shuffled higher up the list because uh there's a lot of good movies on this list I don't know that it would have made my top 10 of this list. Mm. You like we also have a, a Miyazaki in the top 10. So at some point you need to like cut off how many Miyazakis get to be in the top 10. Well, and there are other Miyazakis I like more than Spirited Away. Mm, okay. Other than the one that's other currently than, in your top yeah, 10. Other yeah. than the one we're talking about later. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's it's lovely. It's fa- it's beautiful. I've seen it multiple times. Mhm. Um, it might roll in at number five or six for me sure. in the Miyazaki canon. Sure. Um, but that's not the ranking that we're doing right now. Uh, <laughs> number 39, I have put the webcomic Something Positive by Randall Mulholland. Uh, Something Positive has been running continuously since 2001. Uh, it is still being actively updated. The characters age in real time. Um, I discovered this comic when I was in college, so around like 2006, 2007. 
I've read the entirety of it several times. It's about a group of friends that start in Boston, but as their as their lives start to diverge, they all end up in other places. Um, it is a very sort of heightened reality kind of story. So like it is the the characters are very real people who do real things, but also sometimes beat somebody like beat someone so beat somebody so bad that they like collect handfuls of their teeth and then are not punished for it. Right. So (laughs) it's a little bit Looney Tunes. um, But also it is real enough and the characters go through things that are recognizable enough that I, I just find it very, um, very deeply affecting. And I always have also the fact that Randy has been updating it continuously for 20 years with no perceivable to me fall off in quality, I think is incredible. This is in the old grandfather web comics of uh, Penny Arcade and questionable content. I know you still read QC as do I. I do. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, something positive. Uh, the star, the, the main main character of something positive is a man named Davin McIntyre. Um, and then the rest of his friends kind of rotate in and out based on who he is currently in touch with. Uh, his current story arc, he lives in Texas and has recently um, had to deal with the death of his father, who had been on the decline from mm-hmm. Alzheimer's for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's um, eight or nine years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, it was it was definitely one of those storylines where I was like, this is too real. I don't know if I can deal with it. Um, but Randy is very, very deft at bouncing between hyperbolic violence and just very relatable um, human emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on, on the, the page, I'm on the page right now, and I'm glad that like questionable content, it looks like they he hasn't updated anything about his page since i don't know 2004 correct (laughs) which i appreciate tremendously he and actually randy mulholland was the first as far as i know the first webcomic artist to respond to people complaining about his infrequent updates with fine i'm gonna put a paypal donation button on here Mm. If you guys can get, if you guys donate up to 30 grand, which is how much I would make working my actual job for a year, I will quit my job and make this comic my full-time position. Right. Like I'm doing this for fun. So stop giving me grief. If you want me to do it for real, pay me money. And they did. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. One of the first people back when, before Patreon was a thing, Mm -hmm. um, when webcomic artists still had to depend on PayPal uh, he was one of the first people to actually be able to turn that into like a living wage. Good on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 38 on our list is, um, as we said, number 40 on the list uh, won an Oscar. Number 38 on the list also won many Oscars. Uh, it's the 2000 film Gladiator by Ridley Scott. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies. It is one of my two hangover movies along with Inception um, because I've just seen it so many times that I can put it on, zone out, days off to come back in and know exactly what's happening. Um, The soundtrack absolutely slaps. Yeah, it's kind of a punchline at this point of a movie, but it's kind of still a great movie. Russell Crowe's a fun actor. Ridley Scott knows what he's doing in the directing. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is doing some 
hilarious, amazing choices. Um, you got Marcus Aurelius in it, so what else do you want? <laughs> it's fine. I, it's fine. <laughs> it, it is an absolute dad movie at this point, and I recognize it, and I'm just steering deeper into the skid, so whatever, it's fine. <laughs> I, I'm never mad at it, but I also don't, like, go out of my way to watch it. <laughs> sure. Um, also, it's possible that I haven't actually watched this movie in, like, five or six years now, but it is, I've seen it so many times that I'm still like, oh, we're watching, if I were to wander by and the TV were on, I'd be like, ah, oh, great, I know exactly what the next line is of whatever scene might happen to be on the TV. Sure. <laughs> Uh, number 37, I have selected Stardew Valley, one yes. of my comfort food video games over the past year. Um, it is a farm sim that also lets you like foster human relationships. Um, I, I described it as a, a chore video game. Like, Sorry, that sounds bad. It's a video game about doing chores, but it's amazing it's so addictive i was gonna say it is but also you like doing them yes <laughs> and the more the the more you do them the less you have to yes once you get those iridium sprinklers everything is groovy yeah no it's just it's it's lovely it's very soothing it's so low stakes like nothing nothing bad can happen to you in this game even if you like get too ambitious in the mines or whatever the worst that happens is that you pass out and wake up at home and maybe they take five hundred dollars from you for like dragging your dragging passed you out back bought home. home yeah yeah <laughs> um, um a huge update for it just dropped which adds like dlc levels of free content um including an entirely new map to explore Oh, it's no. great. I so the problem is I put probably two hundred hours into this before the pandemic, and I stopped playing it when Animal Crossing came out because Animal Crossing. Um, and I've been reticent to return to this because I just know what will happen if I do, which is that I'll just only play this for a while. Um, knowing that there's a big new drop, and I think we talked about this on a previous stuck in our head, um, or maybe just off screen, um, off mic. Uh, uh, the more we talk about it, the more I'm just like, uh, I'm going to end up playing this game again soon, aren't I? Yes, it's so good. <laughs> you can you can farm ostriches now, Pete. Whoa, no. Oh, mm -hmm. this is, so this is what I should not know. And now my big question is going to be, do I just try to start up my old great uh, excellent farm with all the iridium sprinklers? Or do I start from scratch and maybe romance a different person? I started a new game. So I start a new game on Stardew Valley every time I learn something that makes me go, oh, if I'd known this when I started <laughs> playing, I would have done it better. So I have three farms right now. Mm. Um, and I just started a new one with the drop. I would say it's about you have to finish the community center before you get access to the new content. I, so it's I finished the community like, center on my old game. So that would be right. So yeah. but it took me like 40 hours of playtime before I could get into the new stuff because I was starting from scratch. Sure. What's number 36 on our list, Pete? <laughs> number 36 on our list is uh, another album. This is 1989 by Taylor Swift. This is on here for many reasons. A, I know that both Martha and I love this album. 
Um, I didn't put it on here because I knew that you would. Right. Um, it, I, I, I was just saying earlier about how Call Me Maybe was my first introduction into the fact that I actually really like pop music. 1980, like, but that was a one-off, you know? I like Call Me Maybe, but other than that, pop music, uh. 1989, when that dropped, was my first actual, like, you know what? No. I'm going to embrace this. I'm not going to call it a guilty pleasure. I'm going to call it a pleasure pleasure. Pop yes. music is great. Uh, Taylor, Taylor Swift writes bangers. So this is my placeholder for A, all Taylor Swift albums. Um, up, uh, uh, back to Red. I have actually not heard almost anything pre-Red by Taylor. So um, that's my caveat there. Uh, but it is, it's my Taylor Swift pick and it's my, yeah, pop music is great. I enjoy it a lot and we should listen to it more. Um also, I was listening to Taylor when she still made country music. Yes, well, aren't, aren't you special? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> no, you should rub that in all the hipsters' faces who might give you grief. Um, this was also a album that dropped right when I started getting into running, and so it is always nice. indelibly tied to that. Like it's the a first, great, it's a great exercise album. It's a great exercise album. I know the first like eight or nine songs on this by heart because of. Because, like, that's 30 to 35 minutes of music, and that was a run, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the only downside is that the album version of Bad Blood is not the one with Kendrick, and I do like that one more. So if I so anytime that comes up on the album, I'm just like, oh, I'm missing the Kendrick verses. Uh, and that is the dumbest quibble in the history of music quibbles. So there we go. Yeah, I believe 1989 has my favorite T-Swift song. of. Yep, it's got Blank Space on it, which it, is the best song she's ever written. Blank Space is a great song. <laughs> I mean, like, the first, like, eight songs on the album are all great songs. I Nine, because Wildest Dreams is number nine. Oh, okay, well, there we go. I'm like, it, it, the back song. half of the album fades off a little bit, but that's also might just be because I stopped running at that point, and, like, by, by song nine, and so I just am not, you know, as deeply invested in those songs. Sure. Uh, so, number 35, let me tell you a story before mm -hmm. I tell you what number 35 is. Uh, sh 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 should I play a sound cue right now of... Um... No, you should not, because it is important for this story that people not know what I'm about to say until I say it. Okay. The first version of my list at my number 50, so what would have been our episodic number 99, was the 1999 classic... Deep Blue Sea. Mm-hmm. A shark ate me. Deep Blue Sea is a fantastic movie that I love very, very deeply. However, within the last few weeks, I saw Jaws for the first time. And this is where I play the sound cue of Nails on a Chalkboard. Jaws, the 1975 Steven Spielberg originator by Steven Spielberg. A little nobody is, known as Steven Spielberg. Is that it is one of the best movies ever made. I am. So I knew that this was the, your first time watching, watching Jaws, and I'm still astonished at that fact. Um, Peter, you and I did a whole episode about blockbusters and did not pick Jaws to watch. What were we thinking? 
I'm sure we picked other good <laughs> blockbusters. Anyway, um, so once I watched Jaws, I could not in good conscience have two shark movies on here where one of them was Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> Which is still a movie that I love very deeply. However, Jaws is one of the best movies of all time and features my three boat dads, mm-hmm. who I love very, very deeply and only want good things for, even though one of them died. Um, Farewell and adieu. It's incredible. Spanish ladies. <laughs> it is possibly the best argument also for showing you as little of the monster as possible. Right. Which famously was um, because they, they built a big old mechanical shark and it kept breaking. So... Yes. By by the time you get to the end where you see the sort of rubberized jaws on jaws, it's a little bit like, mm, we didn't need to see this much. Um, but everything about this movie is so good. The way this is also what led to my my Twitter thoughts about how it's impossible to make a surprise shark movie, because when the people who were in the theater were first like the first people who got to see jaws knew that they were watching a shark movie because he's on the poster like it's not a secret also it was based on a book about sharks so right sure um but the way that spielberg plays with that expectation is so good like the the beach scenes before the shark starts actually eating people well hold on like apart from from that opening yeah okay no, but I mean, so the the movie opens, the woman dies, um, and then you get those beach scenes, and every time the camera, mm. like, the camera focuses on a handful of beachgoers, and every single time you're like, this is it. Right. This is it. And then some guy wanders through looking for his dog, and you're like, oh, no, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it's, it's, it's not until there's, like, there's the famous dolly pan shot, right, where, like, where that's actually the shark attack. I don't know what Dolly uh, Sorry, sorry, uh, Dolly Zoom. The, the Dolly Zoom is the shot where um, it looks like the camera is stationary, but the background looks like it's it's going farther away as we're, like, on a close-up of um, Glass's boat dad. Um, I truly don't remember. Um, it's, it is, like, one of the three famous shots from Jaws. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just... So, the the he hits it so pitch-perfect, and then... The three, the three actors, the the lawman, the scientist, and the grizzled sea captain. Quint. Um, Brody Quentin Hooper, played by Roy Sh- uh, Roy Scheider, Robert Roy Sean, Scheider. Richard Dreyfus, um, are just so good together. They have such good chemistry. Uh, Quint's monologue about being in the water with the sharks is like all time. Yeah. Um, it truly is. And continues to be one of the best survival thrillers of all time. So real quick, a dolly zoom is where the camera is zooming in while it's being physically pulled back. Uh, So that's the dolly part. Like the dolly is pulling the camera physically back while the camera's lens is zooming in at the same pace of the pullback. So it creates a very wild optical effect. Uh, it's It's very hard to pull off because you need to be... You you need your camera operator to be zooming at the same speed that your dolly puller is pulling. Um, and it's it's Roy Scheider on the beach as, like, he realizes something is wrong. And you Got have this, this wild shot. Um, yeah. I love I love a monster movie. I love a giant animal eats people movie. I have watched an unconscionable number of specifically shark attack movies. It is wild that I had never seen Jaws before. When you were tweeting Um, about it, I was like, wait, how is this possible? 
It's very strange. <laughs> very not on brand for me. Yeah. Also, um, I'm going to watch this soon because I've not seen it in a while. Number 34. It's on, H- <laughs> it's on HBO Max. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, number 34 is my other hangover movie. It's Chris Nolan's Inception. Um, this is his 2010 movie about Leonardo DiCaprio incepting ideas in your dreams or stealing ideas from your dreams. Um, I don't know. Like, we all, we're all pop culture nerds. We've all seen Inception. Its ideas have been incepted into our brains. Um, it's wild that it's a hangover movie for me because it's so complicated. But again, it's a movie I've seen so many times that if it's playing it's it complicated though i rewatched it recently and it's it's truly not that hard to keep track of what's going on it, it, it does an excellent job at just pile driving ideas in the first hour so that the following hour just rolls with the punches and you by that point are just fully on board and so whatever wild things happen in the second half were already explained in the first half and so you're just riding that you're riding that kick all the way up um as it were uh, it's a movie where if I were to be, if it were to be playing at a bar and I were in a bar because I'd be fully vaccinated and also bars would be open and all the rest of it, uh, I could like the TV would be on and be like, Oh, I know exactly what scene this is. Um, just want to say that that's pretty much exactly what you also just said about gladiator. Yes. That's because <laughs> like, that's why they're both my hangover movies. I've seen them so many times that I could be like, ah, oh, great. I know exactly what's happening here. Carry on. Love the visuals. Uh, let's watch Joseph Gordon-Levitt have a fight in a crazy, tumbling hotel room. Um, his his relationship with Tom Hardy is the best part of that movie. It's very good. Also, it's the last Chris Nolan movie where he, uh, before he started putting a mask over Tom Hardy's pretty, pretty face. <laughs> uh, I, I also rewatched this one recently. It shines a little off the apple for me. Still very mm. much enjoyed it. Um, but the first time I saw it, I would have called it a perfect cinematic experience. Don't feel quite that strongly about it anymore. Sure. Um, but it is still very good, very inventive. Um, I love the fact that that hallway scene was practical. Um, all right. So number 33 is my most granular... <laughs> point on this list um i for most of most of these if i pick a tv if we've picked a tv show we've picked the entirety of the tv show or if we've picked the series we've picked the entirety of the series for this for number 33 i have selected daredevil season one episode 10 nelson versus murdoch um as representative of what i think So this for me was absolutely the highlight of the Marvel Netflix partnership. Mm. The first season of Daredevil, I thought was their best outing in a lot of ways. And I thought that season 10 or that episode 10 was the best episode of that show. Uh, This is the episode right after Foggy Nelson finds out that Matt Murdock is Daredevil and is also can basically see (laughs) Yeah, Which, right. <laughs> um, he has measured so foggy. So then we get a whole backstory about how their relationship developed and how important they are to each other, um, which also helps to illustrate how devastating this realization is for foggy because in the entirety of their relationship, foggy has been slightly less than Matt in every single aspect, except for the fact that he has felt like Matt relied on him because he could see and Matt could not. Mm -hmm. And then he finds out that that is not true and that this one aspect of their relationship has been a lie the entire time. And the way that, 
Um, so the the actors we have Charlie Cox playing Matt and Eldon Hansen playing Foggy, and you can feel the devastation from Eldon Hansen in every frame of this show or of this episode. And I really felt like the the emotion between these two characters and how raw and hurtful this is for Foggy. Like this is this was the best for me. Like this was the peak mm-hmm. of any of the Marvel TV. And I'm I'm picking this episode specifically because I think this is where that show came to a head. And this was truly the best of all of what all of those um, actors had to offer. And it did help that both uh, the actor playing Foggy and the actor playing Murdoch, uh, Matt Murdoch, were very good, super dialed in, and the pathos on screen was just palpable. Yes, it's it's hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I I agree with you that season one of Daredevil was the best that. Uh, sad because it was also the first of the Marvel Netflix combinations and I think it was also just the best mm-hmm. uh, probably followed by uh, Luke Cage uh, Jessica Jones season one uh, th- those three first seasons were very good anyway uh, number 32 is uh, our first Harry Pratchett uh, experience we've talked about Pratchett on this show multiple times i think we've had at least two if not more pratchett's assigned um he's most famous for writing the Discworld series and mine is one of the vimes books that's about the uh, the city watch of ankh morpork uh, and it is night watch um i picked this partly as a stand-in for all of Discworld, but within all of Discworld, i think my favorite arc is the city watch because they're kind of the best um i do love the one-offs i love um uh, was it Monstrous Regiment and uh, Small Gods and Raising Steam and those books? But uh, the Night Watch, uh, City Watch is sort of my favorite grouping. Vimes is the best. Uh, and Night Watch is my other Venn diagram interest, which is about revolutionary movements <laughs> um, <laughs> and also time travel shenanigans. Uh, it is all of these things because Sam Vimes gets transported back to his childhood where um, young Vimes uh, was dealing with a revolutionary uprising, very similar to the 1848 uprisings in Europe, the, the springtime for the peoples. Um, and he has to make sure it goes off successfully. And also he may or may not have, uh, you know, grandfather paradoxed himself in the process. I was going to um, say, he goes back in time to become his own mentor. Exactly, yes. Uh, we also get young uh, 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 Vetinari, which is... Uh, Vetinari is always the best, uh, and a young Vetinari is even better. Um, yeah, we, we, we have not assigned this one, I don't think. We assigned the fifth elephant, which is also another great one, because that's gothic horror. Um, through a Discworld lens. But this is uh, just a very delightful Discworld book, um, and it's sort of uh, Vimes at his best. It's great. I love Sam Vimes. I frequently refer to him as the character I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, his, I, I agree, his books are the best. Um, this one, I think, is important because it is it shows you the like the full range of things that terry pratchett was so so good at like it is just as side-splittingly funny as anything else but also will tear your heart to pieces Mm -hmm. and it 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 
it references real world events in a like not in a wink kind of way where if you know what he's referencing that's funny but if not that's still great because it works in world as well as an out world reference and vimes is such a great character because he he is a character who was he grew up very very poor um literally pulls himself out of the gutter is like a completely self-made man and will also argue like that aristocracy is the worst (laughs) yes like he will he will be the first one to sign up to to help somebody sign up for welfare like he will be the first one to to say like i may have pulled myself up by my bootstraps but that's just so that i could help other people do the same thing like he's it it might be in this book and if not it's in another vimes book where he talks about the fact that like his copper boots he knows the he knows every road in ankh pork by the feel through his soles because his boots just wear through and it talks about the the trap of poverty where a rich person can spend a hundred gold pieces on boots that will last them 10 years and a poor person will have to spend 50 gold pieces a year on a boot that will last them only one year. So over a long term, um, the the poor person is paying more, but because they can't afford that initial investment, that's why they're, they're stuck in the trap of poverty. Yep. It's Vimes's boot theory of economics. I believe that comes up in feet of clay. Mm. Um, but yes, he is, he is incredible. And also the fact he, None of his demons go away. He just gets better at handling them. Yes. Uh, which is so important for, like, as somebody who deals with mental health struggles, like, just seeing that, like, you're, you're, because he's, he's an alcoholic, and it is a, it is a thing for him that, like, even though he doesn't drink anymore, he's still an alcoholic. Yeah. And that these these issues that he struggles with they are never over he's never cured he just learns different ways to help himself deal with them Mm -hmm. and like learns to rely on other people to help him and that there are people who care about him and are willing to do that and that that doesn't make him weaker for that i love vimes very very much i get very emotional (laughs) talking this this is also the book where his son is born so it's dealing with a lot of that issues as well uh in addition to the time travel nonsense yes it's great um to do also like like we all we both recognize that we could probably have made a list of i don't know our top 50 favorite uh terry pratchett books uh ranked so (laughs) i mean that's again that's the the fallacy in this whole venture exactly but we soldier on to number 31 where i have selected the 2008 animated classic wally wally uh this is the best pixar movie eva the best one this movie looks incredible um the first 20 minutes have no talking mm-hmm. um pixar is just so good at telling a story with no sound or no dialogue yeah. rather yeah um but yeah it's beautiful um the ending credit song is by peter peter gabriel and is one of the best songs mm. ever written <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i'm not being facetious it's great um yeah I love this movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, number 30. Uh, we're back to a podcast. Uh, speaking of the revolutions of 1848, which I just mentioned during the Night Watch uh, discussion intentionally, um, 
is the Revolutions Podcast. This is by podcaster Mike Duncan, who began his podcasting career with the history of Rome. He was a fishmonger in Seattle and was like had listened to a history podcast and was like, oh, I want to listen to a podcast about Roman history. This was in 2006. Um, couldn't find any, and so was like, cool, I guess I'll make one myself. I'll read, like, Livy and sort of come up with my own Roman history podcast. Uh, 200 episodes later, he got through all of Roman history to the uh, generally dated end of the Roman Empire with the and in, 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 like, the 1460s um, with the death of Romulus Augustulus. Uh, and then had a hiatus because his first kid was born. Um, put a pause, started up a new series of podcasts about revolutions. Uh, so he has had multiple seasons. We're talking about the American Revolution, the French Revolution. These are the big hitters. Uh, he is currently wrapping up his final season, which is about the Russian Revolution. Um, the French Revolution had been his longest at something like 50 or 60, 30-minute episodes. The Russian Revolution spent 30 ep or maybe 20 episodes before we even introduced Lenin um, because he was just going through all the various philosophy. Like, we need to get Marxism. We need to get uh, anarchism. We need to understand the state's, uh, you know, philosophy, all the general backstory history. Um Rasputin just got introduced at the most recent episode, which was episode number 46 of the Russian Revolution. So, uh, no, that's not true. Um, episode 50 of the Russian Revolution, and we're just getting to Rasputin. So, uh, great, great deep dive. Great history podcast. His, he has ruined all other history podcasts for me because his voice and his writing are so good that I listen to anyone else, and I'm just like, eh, whatever, this is not doing it for me. <laughs> um, so if you're interested in either various revolutions or Roman history, I'd recommend the Mike Duncan universe. Um, he also has a new book coming out soon, I think in October, about the Marquis de Lafayette. Hey, I know him from Hamilton. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's called The Hero, uh, and, and Lafayette shows up in literally four of his revolution stories, um, or episodes, because... Lafayette was all over the place during the Age of Revolution. I'm so glad that we live in an age where this is something that you can find. Yes, so am I. I'm so glad that a random fishmonger in Seattle in the year 2006 or 7 was like, I can't find a Roman history podcast. I want to do make one. Make it myself. Make it myself. And back then it was like, how do you... Go Yahoo or Ask Jeeves, how do you podcast? <laughs> Uh, number 29, I have selected the 1961 children's classic, The Phantom Tollbooth by mm. Norton Euster, mm -hmm. uh, recently passed away, which was very tragic. Uh, this book showed me that everything I thought I knew about language was not necessarily wrong, but was certainly malleable. <laughs> Uh, the Phantom Tollbooth does things with words and with language that I had never considered um, you could do with writing. Getting lost um, in the doldrums is still something that I am like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it truly was. It was a book that I read. I, I wore out my cover. I wore out my book to death. Mm. If I could erase my memory of one book so that I could have the experience of reading it for the first time again, it would be this book. 
Um, it is just so inventive and so imaginative and such a celebration of the power of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, it really was a remarkable thing for a child to read. Milo, the main character, um, who goes on this fantastical adventure in a world where the magic is basically puns built. Yeah, it's <laughs> language based. It's math based. It's per- it's like, what is reality? Like, how does your perception sh- of something shape its reality? Um, and he's not that remarkable of a guy like the book kind of goes out of its way to tell you how ordinary he is um but also by the end of the book he's like his brain is the one that saves everything so it's it's also very much an illustration of how you can always learn to be better and like even even concepts that you think are impossible are never outside of your reach as long as you have the right tools to like investigate and yeah, in, to investigate them, um, which is a really profound thing for a child to to be learning. I have very strong memories of reading this in fourth grade and uh, having all those like thoughts that you were having of like, this is a wild book. And I don't know if I've read it since then, but on the wiki right now, I'm just reading like random quotes from the book. And I'm like, whoa, OK, I need to read this book again right now because this I, is I... wild highly recommend it it'll take you like two hours um yeah but also i would just recommend like sitting with it yeah it's it's really a book i think that rewards patience and like being willing to read something and not understand it but to kind of sit with it until you can wrap your mind around it Mm -hmm. rather than just sort of breezing past it to get to the next part of the story Mm -hmm. like that that understanding is part of the story right right yeah you should like also like i love puns i love wordplay i know i it's possible that this book is uh unknowingly the patient zero for for that for me (laughs) it it truly it truly was one of those moments where i was like oh i didn't know you could do that yeah yeah all right uh number 28 is an album uh this is maybe the most pete pick of the whole lot because it's definitely the deepest cut um it's the 2010 album disconnect from desire by the indie rock shoegaze dream pop band school of seven bells named after an apocryphal thieves guild from south america um school of seven bells began as um twin sisters uh alejandra uh Deza and Claudia Deza and Benjamin Curtis of uh, Secret Machine. They were lyric-focused first. Uh, the two sisters had excellent uh, excellent harmony together. Um, it's very, it, it's dream pop, it's shoegaze. I could have had a Beach House album on here instead, but School of Seven Bells is my first and greatest dream pop shoegaze love. I have very strong memories of listening to their first album um, in college, uh, very, very much tied into that specific time and place. The band unfortunately no longer exists. One of the sisters left, and then Benjamin Curtis died of cancer. Uh, they have an album uh, put out after his death, which is also very good. I thought about including that one on here. But, um, Martha, I know that music is not your go-to, and words such as dream pop and shoegaze might mean nothing to you. 
But if you like vague soundscapes and female vocalists and good harmonies and sort of walls of sound, if you like Beach House or My Bloody Valentine, uh, this is a great band to check out, and this would be a good starting point. Do they sing in English? Yes. Okay. And the lyrics are, you know, the, the lyrics are first, but also they might have... It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we had some wild dreams, and then we wrote our lyrics based on those dreams. But the lyrics were like the first things that they wrote, and then they figured out the harmonies, and then they figured out the instrumentation. So on the one hand, I, I say that they're lyrics first, but I know that you are a lyrics first person. I am. And I want, to, I want to caveat this by saying the lyrics were first in the writing process, but are part of our larger soundscape. So you might listen to it and be like, I don't know what you mean by the lyrics were first. They were like way back in the mix. I wasn't really paying attention to them. They weren't doing it for me. Um, you just got to float along with the sound. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I'll try it. Great. Uh, at number 27, I have played the 1997 to 2001 animated TV show, Daria, hmm. uh, which aired on MTV when MTV was still a thing. Um, this was a show that made me feel very, very cool watching it when I was in junior high um, and holds up remarkably well as an adult viewer, which is I, why it's on this list. I have not seen it since I was very, like, not very young, but since I was young. So it is it is extremely clever. Uh, the characters are all extremely well written. Um, one of the one of the things it does extremely well is all of the characters that you think are caricatures at the beginning of the show are super duper not like the um you have all of these like high school archetypes like the football player and his cheerleader girlfriend mm -hmm. and the goths and the artists and i think the show works really really hard to get you to realize without ever actually saying it explicitly in like an after school special way that these are all people right and that the, the football player like wears his uniform to school every single day, um, which is ridiculous. Um, but also he is a he is a person in addition to that. Right. And also, I definitely knew some people like that in high school. Right. And I think you use the audience learn that along with Daria, the main character, who is an extremely disaffected youth uh, who moves to a new town her freshman or sophomore year of high school. She's aggressively uh, Gen X. Truly, truly is. Um, you know, meets Jane, her best friend, who is the capital A art student um, with the rock star older brother. Um, but again, you are you are learning along with Daria that these people that she sees initially as kind of two dimensional stereotypes and looks down on them for being so are actually like three dimensional human beings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's great. My husband got it for me on DVD for my birthday one year and he and I have watched it through like a couple of times. Oh, nice. Yeah. The animation is also stylized enough that it holds up as well. Because it's it's Mike Judge, right? So like it's it's a Beavis and Butthead like knockoff or not not spinoff. Is it? I think I think Daria like never, originally I, debuted in Beavis and Butthead. I yeah I never um I was never a Beavis and Butthead person. Hard same. Um yeah she originally appeared as a recurring character in Beavis and Butthead, so the the style kind of works because it as you say it's so stylized. 
Um, but yeah, there's a piece of Gen Xer media that I really like. Pete. <laughs> Number 26 is a uh, an author that we both love and have talked about quite a lot on this show. And I think I've assigned this as a homework uh, for one episode. Um, it is the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin. Uh, this is my stand-in for all N.K. Jemisin, but I think the fifth season is my favorite. It blew my mind when I read it because she writes partly in second person, which I did not know you could do. Um, especially not for a, like, 450-page fantasy novel. Um, it's fantasy at its best. It's... N.K. Jemisin's just incredible. I don't know. We've talked about this book and N.K. Jemisin a lot. Um, and this was one of those things where it could have been even higher up on the list, but I had to just juggle with a bunch of other things. So here it is at number 26. I I probably would have put on The City We Became, Mm -hmm. but, um, I agree. I think just because of the limited nature of this list, leaving things to, um, you know, having, having some things be representative. I um, thought a lot about the city. Like it was the city we became versus this as my, my NK well, Jemison pick. And mostly because Jemison just gets like everything she writes is great. And she's getting better with every book. Yeah. Like I, my first Jemison was the hundred thousand kingdoms, which I still thought was great. Um, but now going back to it, it's still very clearly, Oh, this was like your first long form published thing like everything she writes gets better have you read yet the dreamblood duology no okay it's she actually i think she wrote that before hundred thousand kingdoms but it is ancient egypt flavored fantasy so i already have you right there oh yeah no i'm into it i yeah. just haven't read it yet yeah I'd, I'd highly recommend it we are taking a break here for our, <laughs> our <laughs> taking a quick restroom break. Um, this is our two. Uh, uh, thank you for listening to us for an hour and a half. Uh, tune in. Listen. Keep listening for another hour and a half of good times. At this point, people have either already bailed because they were so bored or they are listening wrapped and we would have them for another two hours if we wanted. Absolutely. We will not be here. We will not be here for another two hours, people. <laughs> I promise. We have a hard out. <laughs> yes. Um, But yeah, we will be right back after this short break. And we are back. We are looking at, we're in the downhill, guys. We are in our top 25 of the list. Uh, and I am kicking things off at number 25 with one of my top novels of all time, the 2001 fantasy epic by Neil Gaiman, American Gods. This was a book I did not know was on your list. And so it was on mine. And it was one of the only things I was going to fight you over. But I decided to let you have it because I'd already made uh, another option instead. Uh, The shine on Neil Gaiman has come off the apple pretty hard for me uh, in the last 10 years or so. Um, I do not worship at his altar anymore. However, I can recognize greatness when I read it. And American Gods is truly, I think, one of the best novels written of all time. Mm -hmm. It is epic in scope. Um, It is... The, the lore is 
deep and clearly well thought out. Um, the characters are vibrant. Um, just everything, everything about it is like a true modern American epic. And one of the things that I love about it is that it is also a road trip book, mm -hmm. which feels very American epic to me. Like if you are going to write a huge American epic, it's got to be a road trip book. Like Stephen King knew that when he wrote The Stand. Yes. Um. <laughs> it, it, it has a line that I still think about anytime I go to Chicago, which is Chicago came on slow like a migraine. And I think that is one of the greatest lines in literature because it is accurate um, and also so evocative. Um. Especially when you're driving down south from Milwaukee to Chicago, you're like, it's fields. And then, like, all of a sudden you're in suburbia. And then all of a sudden you're in, like, real suburbia. And then, you know, and then you're in the city. Um, um, but, yeah, I've always been sad that I didn't like the TV show more. Although I don't think the TV show was very good, which was why I didn't like it very much. Season one was wild because it was Brian Fuller. And then I didn't watch season two because they, uh, it there was Brian Fuller. drama. Yeah. Um, there's been good reviews about season three, but at this point I'm just tapped out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's huge. It gets into it's... a lot of really interesting concepts about like the people that make up America. Um, I'm always a big fan of psychopomps and like manifesting of belief and what that says about people. Psychopomp is one of my favorite words. Um, like, Gaiman vibrates best on one frequency, and the problem is, as he keeps writing, he frequently just is, like, working on that same frequency again and again. And the problem is that he did it best with American Gods, and so everything else feels a little bit derivative. So and anytime every... you, you, you read oh, American Gods, like, if I reread American Gods, I'm almost like... I don't know, it's like Neil Gaiman doing his own shtick, but it's like, no, this was the first time, other than Sandman, he was doing it, and, like, it's it's really, it truly is his best, and, again, has a great pun with Loki Lysmith. Um, I've been chasing the dragon of this book with Neil Gaiman since I read it. Like, yeah, one of the reasons, I think same. Yeah, one of the reasons I just have such trouble with him is because I want everything that he writes to be as good as this book, and nothing is. <laughs> Yeah, like Sandman is up there as well, but the, and that predated this, and I think that's because he was still he was still having fun and playing around, and then after that he kind of he realized what he loved, did it a bunch, and it's like, well, American Gods was the best version of that, so. I'm not a Sandman girl. Mm. I it I spent mo yeah we're we're not we don't have yeah, to get yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah, I yeah. spent yeah. <laughs> fair, fair enough. You're not a Sandman girl. It's Carry on. Deal. It's yeah. not my deal. Cool. Um. Number 24, uh, we got another album because uh, it's it, the beat side of this board is a lot of music. Uh, I'm carrying the weight here. Uh, this is uh, the album Better Oblivion Community Center by the band Better Oblivion Community Center. It's their only album, so don't worry. Uh, this is Phoebe Bridgers of Phoebe Bridgers and Boy Genius and Colin Oberst of Bright Eyes. I recently learned that there's a big Colin Oberst fandom and that can rub people the wrong way. I barely know Bright Eyes. I know him most from better of living community center uh phoebe bridgers is great uh her solo work is fantastic i was close to just it was a tough sophie's choice for me of phoebe bridgers solo work boy genius which is her super group with julian baker and lucy Dacus, and this better of living community center with colin oberst 
And I went with this because I like how the male and female voices uh, blend well with each other. And some of the songs are incredibly evocative. Um, do you like Sad Sack Indie? It's Sad Sack Indie. Singer-songwriters at their best. Uh, it's a modern Death Cab. Like, Death Cab is obviously still putting out stuff, but like... You remember, uh, you remember the scene in Garden State where Natalie Portman uh, puts on the shins and is like, "This will change your life." Yeah, this is that for like the the kids today. Um, it's it's just fun indie singer songwriters at the height of their game, working well together. Uh, Martha, I'm I think happy. you I think I'm you would enjoy. You. I think you would enjoy it because it is literally the most lyrics. I think you would like Phoebe Bridgers. I think you would like. Better Living Community I, Center because it's so maybe, lyrics forward. Maybe I wasn't listening to the right Phoebe Bridgers. I don't know. You can assign me homework and try and get me on board. I want okay. to be on board. Okay. I do. Um, I tried her newest album and it wasn't doing it for me. Um, hmm. Okay. But maybe I need to go back a little further. I mean, she only has one other album. So at that point, you're like, <laughs> or one other, so <laughs> one other solo album. Um, I'll, I'll throw you a couple songs off air and, and we'll see how those uh, work for you. Sounds good. Uh, my pick at 23 is also an album because I like music too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it is the third of the three albums that I have on this list. Uh, it is Indian Summer by Carbon Leaf, which came out initially on 2000, in 2004. Oh, no. um, it has since been re-recorded um carbon leaf went through a whole thing with the studio rights to their music and ended up re-recording oh. and re-releasing a lot of their music just to get the rights back much like taylor swift uh, is currently doing yes uh this is another album where every song is perfect um you turned me on to this album and so i have strong memories or yeah. yeah lifeless ordinary was the single off of the song which played um on like one oh, like the mix one oh one nine FM, the mix uh, in Chicago, the summer of two thousand and four. So right, summer of two thousand and five, maybe it was like right when I was leaving for college. Um, and first of all, it is wild that this. How many times can we say wild in one episode? Um, <laughs> no, it was a strange pick for a single from this, as far as I can tell, very indie band. Um, I don't know that any of their other music got as wide of radio play as Lifeless Ordinary did the summer of 2005. Um, but I heard it and I fell in love. Uh, their stuff is great. Uh, they're a little bit folky, a little bit folk rocky-ish. Um, they were like three years too early to ride the Mumford wave. Yes, they were. They were a little ahead of Mumford. And I think because of that, they have remained pretty niche. Um, I saw them a couple years ago at the city winery, a little tiny bar venue in Chicago. Uh, the album that we're talking about is Indian summer, which again, top to bottom, perfect album. Uh, this is another one where the songs are sort of generally emotive and then also tell a very specific story. It is, it's an album. It's a road trip album. It is, I, I think it, it is telling a story of, um, that feels very apropos as you are traveling and kind of trying to find where you fit. Um, it is, and then ultimately kind of accepting who you are and what you want from life. Um, it's evergreen for me. 
Carbon Leaf is a band, and Indian Summer especially, is a band that I, or album that I fully associate with you. Uh, we saw this at Brookfield Zoo. Uh, we saw them we play did. Brookfield Zoo at one point. <laughs> um, uh, but, like, I'm, I'm looking at the, the track listing now, I'm like, I, I'm having flashbacks to, like, being in college and, like, hanging out with you all, like, you in the summer and all the rest of it. And then I look at, like, the previous album and the, the, and the follow-up album, like, yeah, no, these were the three albums of Carbon Leaf I was into. Uh, Love, Lost, Hope, Repeat was their follow-up album. Oh, yes. Uh, Five Alive was their previous one. They did a cover of Merry Mac, which was my first exposure to Merry Mac, um, which is like an Irish round kind of song. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at these track listings, and I'm like, immediately these songs are popping into my head, and I'm having flashbacks. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, number 22 um, is a thing that I'm sure we'll both be having flashbacks of in 10 years. Um, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons, the video game that got us all through this horrible year of a pandemic. Hello! Uh, <laughs> um, through pure perfect happenstance, this happened to drop roughly when lockdown happened. And so, uh, Nintendo Switches were impossible to find because everyone wanted one. Thankfully, those of us who already had one were able to go download Animal Crossing New Horizon. Um, it's just the best game ever made, because it's like you do your chores on the island, and you make your animal friends, and you build your island, and then you stop playing for a couple months, and then you pick it up again. You're like, oh, my island looks like a Jack Skellington nightmare, because I stopped playing around <laughs> October. So, so it's all pumpkin fences, and you're like, I'm going to redo everything. And then you redo everything, and then you're like, ah, oh, I like this island. Um... And that's not autobiographical in the slightest. <laughs> yes, I also have been picking it up again um, and just just dis- like slowly dismantling my entire island. I've chopped down all of my trees. They oh, are bold. all gone. I, I visited Friends Island months ago and they had an orchard, like a proper orchard. I'm like, oh, 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 okay. I don't want it. I don't want the responsibility of farming fruit. Mm, I have a big old pumpkin patch still. I've stopped watering them, but it's there. I'm also trying to get blue roses, but I'm increasingly more interested in getting just a bunch of gold roses. Well, you get gold roses by watering black ones with a gold watering can. I know, I have 13, but I want more. Um, okay. I but think I, I can get you blue roses. I've been trying to breed blue roses, and it's just a nightmare. Um I have I'll this idea I... of creating a tricolor like French flag with all the all the flowers that are both blue, white, and red. And blue roses are impossible. You're a nerd. Um uh-huh. let me check my island. I think I might have I think I might have one that I can propagate for you. Okay. Well, check back with me. Alright. Um yeah, it's great. It has offered me peace of mind and comfort and cute animals in this trying time. It offered me a metaphorical egg in this trying time. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, thank God uh, Bunny Day is over so that we no longer have to deal with the tyranny of eggs everywhere. I got so mad when I, because <laughs> I time traveled back because I was like, well, maybe there will be new recipes. There were not. They were all the same recipes from last year. And I was like, guys. <laughs> I had not made the wand last year because I was just like one item short or something or I just wasn't caring. So this year was the first year I got to actually have all the recipes made. To which the reward was the one. Another one, yes. No, it was, yes. it was um, not worth the week and a half of dealing with eggs everywhere. No. Number 21, The Wicked and the Divine comic <sighs> series by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. 
which ran from 2014 to 2019. Perfect graphic novel series. Yes, this is this is also one where it's like, oh, this is my hole. It was made yes. for me. Yes. Um, um, I, I love how you have, uh, well, other than Carbon Leaf, you have American Gods and then Wickdiv, which is like, those two are very much of a piece. Oh, yes. The Wicked and the Divine is about how every 90 years or so, um, a group of teens to new adults are possessed by the spirit of some kind of myth- mythological entity they take on the persona of a god of some kind they live for two years create perfect art and then die yes and the the wicked and the divine covers the current pantheon as they are called um through the eyes of laura who is a pantheon fangirl uh and over the course of the story actually becomes part of the pantheon Um, And the whole thing is about uncovering the history of what is actually happening, who is pulling the strings, why this is happening, and how they are able to disrupt this cycle of young, violent death. It also has some of the greatest single episode, like single comic episodes I've seen, the uh, deeper in where we're learning the deeper lore and like traveling back back through time uh, and, and so Martha where it's just like, a bunch of single panels over the course of 5,000 years blew me, blew my mind away. And I'm using that kind of pun intended. I truly believe that Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey should just be allowed to create whatever they want, whenever they want, either together or apart. I believe that they should be locked together, forced to create things with each other for all time. I I don't (laughs) think so. Kieran Gillen is right now making two of, I think the finest comics on the market right and I, now i haven't read either yet and i know that's a failing oh of mine. my i God, both Peter. die both die and um the once in once future in king future. yeah which are like oh cool you're doing a graphic novel about D. well that's up my alley and you're doing a different graphic novel about king arthur mythos well bleep and pump that right into my veins <laughs> um <laughs> so yes i know those are both failings that i haven't touched either yet but i will get to them soon yeah um, but yeah, they're incredible. This comic is incredible. Um, I want it to become a TV show just so I can consume it again in like a different format. Um, it is saying so many intelligent things about how we treat celebrity, which actually in the shadow of the Britney Spears documentary mm. is very, very poignant. It would be um, wild to have Britney as like an Amaterasu type. Well, and each, each, god is clearly based off of a different artistic figure so like lucifer is bowie lucifer is bowie um someone is prince i don't remember oh, um uh it's ishtar. not ishtar. ishtar is prince is it ishtar i think it's ishtar um who, who's the thunder god ball ball is like kanye ball is kanye yeah. um amaterasu is florence of florence and the machine um oh. Uh, Sakmet is Rihanna. So yes, like you, yes. you can, you, they take very, very strong visual cues from established. Oh, um, uh, uh, Odin. Inanna. Inanna is Prince. Inanna. Yes. You're totally right. Yes. Um, whomever the Norse pantheon person actually is, I'm going to go with Odin is, um, RIP, uh, Def Punk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the the art is beautiful because it's Jamie McKelvey. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
And yeah, it's just, it's very poignant. It's very emotional. It really makes us think, it really makes me think about how we treat um, and relate to celebrity and art and artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think you might've been the one to turn me on to this uh, graphic novel. And I'm so glad you did early on in its run so that I could jump in feet first early and go from there. Uh, number 20 on our list is uh, yet another perfect movie. It's Mad Max Fury Road, a movie that in the theater I was like, wait, you didn't kill someone while making this movie? Fascinating. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they just went out into the desert and filmed a bunch of nonsense. Um, no, Mad Max Fury Road is the story about uh, we're in the far distant Mad Max future and uh, Tom Hardy has a thing over his face because that's what Tom Hardy does. Um, and it's mostly about um, uh, the Imperator Furiosa trying to take the uh, concubines of a horrible Donald Trump-esque but pre-Trump um, watermonger uh, out into safety and uh, create a new life in this horrible post-apocalypse apocalyptic wasteland but it's also about the fact that we have a blind flamethrower guitar wielding guitar player known as uh what the mad doof i think um who lives on the back he's bungee corded to a giant taiko drum set truck and plays their music as they ride furious and chrome into valhalla i love this movie great film I I wish it had I wish it had heralded more action roles for Charlize Theron because she is so good. She in was this. in um she had an action movie. It was like a Red Sparrow um John Wick Atomic Atomic, Atomic Blonde. Blonde, yeah. It was wild, interesting, good. I'm more interested in a Furiosa movie starring her than that. But if you haven't seen Atomic Blonde, like, give it a whirl. I don't know that Furiosa has more story that I care about. Mm. Like, this this was good. Right. This like, felt good. You you got her backstory from the movie. You don't need to see her becoming the next warlord of the waste. Yeah, I really don't. I'd yeah. rather see something new. Yeah, right. Um, but no, this movie is great. I love practical effects. It is edited perfectly truly perfectly uh also the color editing in the color timing is just outrageous yes Um, and it was part of the trend that is continuing of we have cast perfectly beautiful tom hardy and we're gonna put something over his face for most of the movie time (laughs) yes (laughs) um so at number 19 I am rolling in with, uh, when did this come out? Oh, the bo- I would say the boldest pick of our top 20, maybe. That's because you haven't watched it yet. This is true. You've also mentioned this as a uh, suck in your head at one point. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, this is the 2016 12-episode anime series Yuri on Ice, which is um, one of the best sports animes that has ever been made. Uh, it is about it is about Yuri, a Japanese figure skater who thinks he's at the end of his uh, competitive career until a video of him skating uh, a routine from a Russian figure skater, Viktor Nikivarov, goes uh, viral and inspires Viktor to come to Japan to be his coach. 
And he tells Yuri that he is going to coach him into taking the gold at the Grand Skate, at the Figure Skating Grand Prix, which is a multi-part competition um, that in the timeline of the show will be happening in about eight months. Every competition that happens in the show is real. Every. Um, what do you mean by real? I mean, they are they are co- like they are cups and competitions that happen in the world that you. And <sighs> OK, I live sure, in. sure. So it's, it's the Russia Grand Prix or whatever. And that's an actual thing. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, every every one of these competitions is something that real people compete in and figure skate. Sure. In figure skating. Um, it is one of the best depictions of competitive figure skating I have ever seen in fiction. Um, I was a figure skater until I was about 14, at which point my coach said, get serious or stop. So I stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of feelings about that decision now as an adult, but when I was 14 and wanted to have a social life in high school, it seemed like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also a subversively very, very queer show. Um, I, figure skating is a sport feels like it is figure skating as a sport is incredibly homophobic oh okay yes figure skating is incredibly sexist it is incredibly racist it is incredibly homophobic there are a lot of issues with figure skating Hmm. um it is a sport that i love that will not love you back Mm. um but this show which was created by japanese creators and made in japan had very strict um kind of uh, content guidelines that it was allowed to, uh, follow. So like in the fourth episode, there is a moment where two characters very clearly leap into each other's arms. And if it was a show that was made anywhere else that if it was a show that had been made in, in America, we would have seen these two men kiss because it was made in Japan. We don't get to see that. But it very, very clearly happens. So it's also a really wonderful love story between these two <laughs> men as they are figuring out their professional and their personal relationship. Sure. Um, I have watched this series through about seven or eight times now because it is only 12 episodes and each episode is only 22 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> So Perfect. I will occasionally say I would really like to watch the Rustelecom Cup competition, but as well, as long as I'm here, <laughs> and then suddenly I have watched the entire thing. Right. Um, it also has a wonderful cast of international characters um, because it's about it, it's it's a really about this whole crew of competitive figure skaters. So you've got a skater from Italy and a skater from um thailand and a skater from i don't don't know all all around all over the world not really okay (laughs) i I know nothing about skater no it's great so they all get very colorful um and complete personalities even when you don't necessarily get to know or get to spend much more than like half an episode with somebody sure um but yeah it's great talking about comfort food media this is real high on my list um (laughs) and uh the the figure skating the other thing i want to mention is that all of the figure skating routines um the creators worked out with actual choreographers so they could watch people skate them and base the animation off of um what real people could do so even though some of the characters do things in this that are kind of insane yeah um it is 
based on actual routines that were actually choreographed um, so that they could watch them for their uh, to be animated. Right. Yeah. That is so critical. Like, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. It's indelible. And the fact that it is so memorable um, and so emotionally impactful and it only lasts 12 episodes. I mean, it's a crime that they're, that there was hasn't been a season two like Olympics arc <laughs> of this show, um, but we can hope. Hope springs eternal. Uh, well, speaking of um, things that, in your case, got no additional seasons, and in my case, got maybe too many additional <laughs> uh, sequels. Uh, my number eighteen is uh, Dune by Brian Herbert, uh, the movie that we're all super excited for. To watch in a theater again, hopefully this year. Uh, but it began as a book, of course, about um, Paul Atreides, who is the son of a noble family in space times, uh, whose family is being reassigned to the spice planet of Arrakis, where they create hallucinogenic spice, which controls the entire universe because the spice is, as we all know, life. Um... Paul goes through adventures, such as his family being uh, murdered to death in front of his eyes, or at least his father, the Duke, uh, in a coup d'etat uh, orchestrated by their rivals. Um, him finding out that he's the Quistas Haderach, or Hiderach, uh, the, yeah, the culmination of a centuries-long breeding program by the Bene Gesserit witches. Uh, him writing sandworms for the first time. I don't know. This book is wild. It's amazing. It does the amount of world building per page in this book is out of control. Um, and uh, it led to a famously maligned, but in some ways fascinating, but in other ways bad, David Lynch movie from the 80s starring um, Paul McLaughlin. Uh, and a people think was better, but also probably worse, sci-fi movie version back in the, like, Late 90s, early aughts. It's better. It's more faithful. It's also wild. Um, <laughs> I'm putting a moratorium on that word. Neither of us is allowed to say it anymore. All right, fair enough. Um, it also <laughs> spawned a number of sequels. Uh, Brian Herbert wrote, I think, five sequels to it. Um, yes. If I did my quick count right. And then died. And then his son and Kevin J. Anderson keep writing more books, which they should not be allowed to do. They're bad. They're terrible. I tried to right. I tried to reread one of them and I was like, oh, no. I, oh, so no. I, I reread Dune recently and I'm sure I'll be rereading it again soon. I would love to reread uh, uh, Children of Dune and Dune Messiah. And I also kind of really want to reread god emperor of dune because i haven't read that since i was in high school but once we start getting into like chapter house dune i'm a little more like are these ideas good or are they just weird and or and are then, they just capital a capital l a lot yeah and like i'm down for that um when we're down when we're like we have the the ben and Jesuits versus the reverend matres like Okay, maybe that's good. Uh, but once we get into the the Kevin J. Anderson, Brian Herbert, I don't need to track with any of that. Um, but yeah, Dune is going to be a movie, uh, I think in two parts, directed by uh, Villeneuve, uh, Villeneuve and starring uh, our best boy Tim Sham. Uh, and I'm very excited for it. Also Oscar Isaac. Also Oscar Isaac, also Zendaya, also like uh, Jason Momoa. We could keep going. 
Oh yeah, no, everyone's gonna be in that movie, and I'm very excited. That being said, you were hating on the uh, the David Lynch version. Patrick Stewart is Gurney Halleck in that, and that is wild. I, I broke the moratorium just for that. I was going to say, you owe me a dollar for every time you say that from now on. Um, no, it's a bad movie. Like, it's ambitious. It's ambitious. The third act it's falls apart. It's not good. The first two acts are interesting, and the third act falls apart real bad, because David Lynch didn't actually care about it. It was like, what if the weirding way was a laser gun? Uh, that they did with say, their mouths. I truly, I truly hate his interpretation of the weirding way. Yeah, no, that's objectively horrible. Um... Also, potentially the best movie never made, Yodorowsky's Dune. Yodorowsky's Dune would have been uh, incredible, yeah. Uh, especially because he trained his child to be Paul's Atreides by um, subjecting him to the torments of Paul Atreides for 10 years. Because <laughs> Yodorowsky was a madman. I would really like to watch the documentary they made about that. Have um, you not? Not yet. Oh, you should. Yes, I know. Great. Um... All right, rolling right along. Number 17. So before we started recording, Pete, you asked me if I had made any changes to the list. I did notice that this was not on the list last time. Last time and this time. And the one change I made was to add this uh, to the list at number 17. Uh, the 2019 TV series uh, Watchmen. This is an this is a property we have already talked extensively. I mean, we did a whole Watchmen episode. Yes. Um, the TV show, I think, the more I sit with it and the the longer I get to think about it, the more I am convinced that it transcends its source material. Would um, you say it might transcend space and time? Yes. It's brilliant. Regina King is luminescent in it. Uh Yaya Abdul Mateen is, is actually luminescent in it. Incredible spoilers. <laughs> uh, we Jeremy, did a whole episode on this. <laughs> Jeremy Irons is bonkers. Um, it has one of the best villains in it of any story I've seen recently. Um, and I am referring to um, Lady. Hong Chao as Lady True. Mm -hmm. When I when I say villain, uh, it's just it is it is a show that rewards you for sticking with it. But each individual episode, I would say, has very little interest in making sure that you're keeping up. It just sort of accepts that you will. Yep. <laughs> um, and that, that being said, um. Marin has not, like, I think she's seen the Watchmen movie, maybe, and is not versed in the Watchmen lore, but very much enjoyed this show. So, like, oh, for sure. It obviously rewards those who know the, the original text, no, I, but doesn't require it. I meant, like, each episode unfolds, and you're kind of like, I. It is a puzzle box show. So, what I yes. mean, what I meant by what I just said is that each episode kind of individually doesn't bother to explain itself a whole lot because mm -hmm. it knows that by the end everything will make sense right um so it's not really it's not really here to explain to you the viewer what is happening every step of the way in the show but if you are patient and you are paying attention 
and you stick with it, by the end, everything that happened made sense the way that it happened. You're making me want to rewatch this show. I'm going to. Like, <laughs> I, one of the reasons this is here is because my parents are watching it for the first time. Oh. So I got to talk about it recently and it was like, oh, yeah, that was some of the best TV that's ever been made. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we would have felt remiss if we had not addressed it. I think you're as right. part of this list. And I co-sign everything you say. All right. Uh, number f- 16 is an album that I think I assigned as homework at some point. Um, it is the 2006 album Boys and Girls in America by the band The Hold Steady. Um, the Hold Steady started off as a rock band in uh, the Twin Cities, uh, fronted by Craig Finn, formerly of Lifter Puller. Uh, they have since moved from the Twin Cities. Uh, Craig Finn currently resides in Brooklyn, but they're still putting out albums. Um... I have deep and abiding love of the Hold Steady. I got into them in college. Their early albums, such as Boys and Girls in America, are all about, um, you know, partying and hanging out. Uh, I'm very basic as a white guy. I, I'm a basic white boy. So, like, there are nights that I think that Sal Paradise was right, which is a reference to Jack Kerouac. When I was in college, hit me very hard. Um, more importantly, not off this album, but the line, certain songs, they get so scratched into our souls. Like, if, uh, you said on the last episode that there was a Neutral Milk Hotel lyric you would get tattooed on you, that line, I would maybe get tattooed on me. Um, also, the, the whole study has a new album out right now where they almost, there's a song, which is my favorite on the new album, which almost repudiates everything they've been doing because it has the line, um, I no longer see the romance in these ghosts where the entire ethos of the whole study up until now has been like celebrating the romance in these ghosts. Like, wasn't it fun when we were hanging out in bars and partying and doing all the stuff? It's like, I don't know. I, I no longer see the romance in these ghosts. This coffee's cold. The toast is gross. Uh, and and it's it's wild and fascinating seeing this band sort of change over time. Um, but just for raw, raucous, Bruce Springsteen songwriting, songsmithing energy, hold steady. Um, also, um, uh, last part point, got into them in college before I met my wife, who is from uh, Minnesota. So then she got into it because of all the Minnesota references in a lot of their early songs, like their, the twin city references. So first couple times I went up to Minneapolis with her, I'm just like, Oh, that's Lindale. Oh, that's Hennepin. These are all songs. Like these are all street names referenced <laughs> in old steady songs. And she had the opposite where she's like, Oh, he's singing about Hennepin. I know that area. Sure. Um, I think I assigned this at one point and you probably do not vibe with it quite as much. And uh, we can I move on if it. you want. Yeah. I was going to say, I enjoyed it. I don't know that I've revisited it since um, we talked about it, mm-hmm. but I I can see why it resonates with you so deeply. Right. Like, it's it's a it's a heady cocktail of nostalgia on a couple different timelines. At number 15, I have put my best novel of the last decade. Mm. Uh, the Power by Naomi Alderman. Uh, This book came out in 2016, and the premise of it is that women and girls uh, on planet Earth start to spontaneously develop the ability to electroshock people. Hmm. Um, 
as the the book goes on, you start to learn where this ability is coming from. It is very much biological. Um, We're talking like mutant type situation. Yeah. So basically women and girls develop a, um, like a, an organ that lives right under their skin around their collarbone that works kind of like an electric eel Mm. to generate the electric current. Um, But the book is more about what, how this changes everything. I was going to say, I'm sure that the patriarchy doesn't um, fear or try to suppress this or grapple with this in any meaningful way. Uh, One of the most affecting scenes in it takes place in um, Saudi Arabia. Mm. where a group of women, it, it talks about, like, the, the scene is from the point of view of a male photographer who is trapped in a building as women are just taking to the streets mm-hmm. um, in protest for how they have been treated for hundreds of years because now they finally have the physical ability to fight back. What's what's the POV structure of this book? Like, is it, like, uh, I'm, I'm almost thinking, like, a World War Z situation? It's alternating chapters. It so it's not it's not so much telling the story in the past tense like a World War Z, but it's got about it's got five or six different characters that we rotate POV from okay. in okay. each chapter. Sort of all over um, the world. Yeah. So you have one woman who's an American politician whose daughter develops this power. Um, you have a, a oh, so girl. so it's not all women. It's it's some. It, it is all women. It starts with younger women. Mm, okay. Um, so the, the older you are, the less likely it is to kind of manifest or the slower it is to manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have one, one girl who becomes sort of a religious type figure. One girl who is her dad is a mob boss and how he um tries to use her mm. abilities for his own gain it's it is a very a fascinating group of women every single one of whom is imperfect and incredible and dealing with this the best way that they can um it is just i th- i th- it was such a perfect encapsulation of all of the rage that mm has been expressed by and on behalf of women over the last, I mean, forever, but particularly in the wake of like me too. And yes, all women and like all of these things that we have watched and given voice to, um, on social media and in the world. Um, this book was for me such a cathartic way it the whole book is a scream the whole mm-hmm. that's like the best way that i can kind of describe it is just the whole book is a scream of rage that i ultimately found very cathartic to read i was going to say i will add it to my goodreads but it turns out i've already added it to my goodreads at some <laughs> point so uh, i should maybe bump this up higher on my list yeah it was it was not only the best book that i read between 2010 and 2020 but the most of its time Mm. um but also in a way that i find distressingly timeless right like the the problem is that it is the most of its time yes yeah 
Um, well, this is a, a bad segue, but speaking of timeless, <laughs> uh, number 14 is the timeless classic, 1987, Rob Reiner, perfect film, The Princess Bride. Um, we've talked about this on the, the podcast a lot. We both love The Princess Bride. In our high school sci-fi club, there's a tradition of watching it once a year. Um, I, an idiot, uh, my freshman year of high school had never seen it and was like, ah, princess and bride? Uh, oh, <laughs> no. Um, because I was a 14-year-old boy. Um, and now we, I, I recently rewatched it and I was like, yeah, this is a perfect film. <laughs> Don't know what else to say other than just quoting the Princess Bride at each other. <laughs> um, did we talk about the Quibi Princess Bride adaptation? We did. We did indeed. Okay. Um, okay. I, I believe at one point I assigned the Wisconsin Dems live reading of this as a fundraising thing. And during that episode, um, which I think was about quarantine or pandemic media, uh, we talked a lot about the Quibi Princess Bride adaptation. Uh, starring every famous person you might know who has a Quibi. Or I guess Quibi's not a thing you have, but whatever. It was hilarious. Yes. Also, uh, masks are uh, terribly fashionable, and I'm sure in the future everyone will be wearing one. Yes. Uh, at number 13, I have selected Pokemon Heart Gold and Soul Silver. I have been playing the Pokemon games since I was 12. Mm hmm. I have played every generation. I upgrade my Nintendo handheld console in accordance <laughs> of there is going to be a new Pokemon game. Part of that is these games are great. Like yes. if you if you boil them down to brass tacks, they have gotten me to play the same game in like 15 different iterations over and over again and to have just as much fun every single time I do it because the way that they improve like quality of life things in the game is so expertly paced in red and blue you could not run in gold and silver you could run and it's like oh my god or actually right. i i don't think that was until ruby sapphire but like still it's like oh my god this is better and i have specifically selected heart gold and soul silver because gold and silver was the best yeah. story it was the best story it was the best map it was the best set of characters it was the best pokemon and they re-released a couple generations of the games with like same same everything only using the new engines so heart gold and soul silver is the second release of the gold and silver generation only all of the quality of life things that had been developed in the generations and between those things were now applicable in heart gold soul silver. So things like all of your poke, like you get XP for catching Pokemon, which was mm -hmm. not true right, in the right. original games. Um, so it was the best games um, with the, with all of the gameplay improvements to give you the like best experience. Heart gold and soul silver also did the thing that I think all of the games should do. When you finished the new map, you could travel to the old map from red, the red and blue generation. You could do that with normal gold and silver as well. Yes. Yeah. That's sorry. That's what I mean. Um. So you you had access to both of the maps. All and, and you I could was... fight all the gym leaders again. You could fight Misty again. Yes. And Brock. 
all I have ever wanted was a is a giant composite Pokemon game that has <laughs> the whole map. That has everything. You want to go to Kanto whole... and Johto, and uh, those are actually the only two continents I know. <laughs> give me, give me the whole, give me access to the whole world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that was brilliant. It's a great, it's a great piece of storytelling. They continue to be compelling, even though I have played them over and over and over again for over 20 years now. I pre-ordered Pokemon Snap the red hot instant <laughs> Nintendo made that announcement because I've been saying since the Switch came out that Pokemon Snap would make a great Switch port. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I, but yeah, these had to be here. I, I, I played Crystal on the Game Boy Advance instead. Like uh, one of my brothers had gold, I think, or silver. He mm -hmm. had silver. And then I played Crystal. And I still remember at least half of my lineup from Crystal because it was the best lineup. It's like, yeah. Uh, Crystal was actually part of the Ruby Sapphire generation of games. No, Chris, um, what was the gold silver third one? There wasn't one. Yes, there was. And it was Crystal. It was Ruby Sapphire. And then there was a. Am I confusing? Hmm. Okay. I, hmm. I truly think that you are. Hmm. Oh, nope. Hmm. I am correct. Because I'm like, I had an Espeon and an Ampharos, and I, I had a female avatar, though, in Crystal, but it was the gold-silver map. Oh, Emerald was the third. Emerald. Yep, okay. Yeah. All right, well, I'm glad that I remember at least half of my uh, uh, general loadout <laughs> in uh, the gold-silver Crystal-verse, uh, a game that I have not played in or thought about in 15 years. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, all right, uh, my number 12. Martha. When you saw this on my list, you asked me the, uh, the vital question. Are you talking about the books or the movies? Mm -hmm. And when you asked me that question, I said, good thing I have two weeks to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm making the snap judgment right now. I'm going to go with the movies. I'm talking, of course, about The Lord of the Rings. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien. I am a Tolkien stan. I have read The Silmarillion multiple times. Um... Because I'm a big old nerd. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, in one of apparently his last things he did, read the, uh, uh, the uh, Hurin, which is the, uh, a posthumous Tolkien book about Hurin, a character from the Silmarillion. So we're talking about posthumous cuts of a posthumous cut, um, but it's absolutely my jam, um. But I'm going to be talking uh, for this about the movies because, I don't know, these movies came out from 2001 to 2003, a very formative time in my life. Uh, obviously, Peter Jackson starring, whatever, you, you're all nerds, you've all seen Lord of the Rings. Um, Rewatched them at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was, they still hold up incredibly well. Um, I was walking around the river the other day, and I heard someone from across the river playing the recorder, and I thought for a hot second he was playing the, the Shire theme. Um, he wasn't, but it was so bucolic and so like, oh, you're playing a recorder. I'm like, that must be the Hobbit song. Uh, and that's what these, this movie has done. It's lodged its, its tendril so deeply in my brain that when I hear someone playing a recorder out in nature, I just assume they're playing, um, uh, the, the Hobbit song. Uh, this one has, so, um, did you do... I believe it's Return of the King. 
Um, the most Oscars? Well, obviously. Yes. Um, no, I mean the... Um, most endings? Also has one of the best <laughs> end credits music. Yes. Or end credits songs. Yes, by Annie Lennox. Into, Into the, the West. West. One of the best songs of all time. But even the Enya song from, uh, I'm not super hot on Gollum song from Two Towers, but Enya's song for Fellowship is a lovely end credit song. Uh, and Return of the King also features our little musical interlude from Pippin, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's great. It makes me cry. Um, but I agree. These, these are the movies that I put on whenever I'm sick. Yes. Um, um I, I, I'm sure you, like me, uh, you know, got the extended edition DVDs when we were in high school and so therefore have watched all the commentary tracks and 800 hours of like the Weta Workshop dudes being like, oh yes, here's the time we spent building the swords over here and there's James Lee drawing a new sketch of a... Uh. So, honestly, <laughs> I have not because I've never been a special features person. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but I do watch the extended versions. Mm-hmm. Bill, Bill is the one that right. is deeply invested in all of the... Right. He he would know if I was like, yes, Ellen Taylor oh, yeah. was drawing the, the Witch King's armor. It's like, oh, yes. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, he would know exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> um, no, the, I, I don't think it's too much to say that these were probably very formative for you and I. Like yes. the um, Fellowship of the Ring came out when I was a freshman. Also, these, it's this... important to recognize the Fellowship of the Ring came out like three months after 9-11. Yes. Which also, probably was part of that, like, formative, you know. Um, also, these movies are why I watch the Oscars every year. Mm. Because they all got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Return of the King finally won a bunch of Oscars. Whoopi Goldberg hosted the Oscars the first year that Fellowship um, was nominated, which I remember because mm. she did a bit about Black Hobbits, which I thought was hysterical and still do. Um Number 11 is our second appearance by Sir Terry Pratchett. R.I.P. Yes. Uh, Unlike Pete, I did not limit myself to one book because I simply could not. I have instead selected the entirety of the Tiffany Aching branch of Discworld books. Um, I said before that Vimes is the character that I aspire to be. Uh, Tiffany Aching is the character that I feel the most like. Um, her books are the sort of young adult spin-off branch of the witches books. Um, and Tiffany starts in the We Free Men as a girl of like nine or ten. Previous homework um, assignment on this show many years ago. Yes, I get again, listeners will remember that I get very emotional when I'm talking about Tiffany Aching. <laughs> um, but she she does I mean the over the course of the five or six Tiffany Aching books, she grows up into a young woman and she she grows from a girl who learns about what it means to have power into a woman who knows when to exercise it. Um, she is flawed and learning and perfecting and always trying to be better. And one of the things that's great about her books is that Pratchett shows that you can mess up. You can try to do good. You can mess up. But as long as you try to fix what you've done, you're, you still end up with a net good. Mm-hmm. That the, the the bad comes from messing up or doing bad and then not bothering to fix or correct it or learn from your mistakes. Yes. I, I think it'd be fair to say that Pratchett is one of the most humanist authors out there. Um, but uh, um, 
in the sense that, like, that is his ethos through and through. Like, between Vimes and Tiffany Aching and all the rest, it's all about, you know, like, like, like what you were saying with Nightwatch. It's like, you can still be struggling with your personal demons. It's how do you persevere? Like, you don't defeat them. You don't overcome them. You just have to learn to live with them. Um, you can make mistakes. You just have to learn how to get better. And, like, you might not ever be able to fix them. But you can at least get better and improve from them and, and go from there. Yes, exactly. Um, which was a, a good and intentional segue to my number 10, which uh, if uh, Pratchett is one of the most humanist authors on our list, mine is a actual self-identified humanist author, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I have Slaughterhouse-Five. Again, as I said earlier, I'm a basic white straight boy. Uh, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut is legally obligated to be somewhere on my list. And... Slaughterhouse-Five, I think, is a perfect book. Um, it broke my brain the first time I read it because I was already an anti-war person, and it is, I think, the most anti-war book I've ever read. Uh, but it doesn't preach at you, it pooty-weets at you. Um, it just, every fiber of its being is telling you that war is bad, but never in a... You know, it, it, it never feels like it's harping or anything else like that. Um, it subtitles The Children's Crusade because, as he explains in the introduction, the uh, wife of the person he was talking to about the book was like, you boys were just boys in that war, and, and you shouldn't be allowed to do that. You shouldn't write a war uh, book at all because it'll glorify war. And he says, well, if I do, um, I'll call it The Children's Crusade. Uh, and here we are. Uh, it also has... Again, one of the most striking lines in literature for me, where he self-inserts himself um, as he's talking. Uh, so, the premise of, of Slaughterhouse-Five is Billy Pilgrim is a World War II soldier who gets unstuck in time, visits the Tralfamagorians, who are aliens from alien worlds. Uh, they look like plungers with little feet. Um, and it's just his experiences through life being unstuck in time. So it's told achronologically. First, this checks my box of achronological storytelling. I love it. Uh, second, it has an author insert where he describes a a, a soldier in the slaughter or in in Dresden during the firebombing. He's like, there was a, a 19 year old skinny boy who was just crying for his mother, and then he says, "That was me. That was the author. That was I who was screaming for his mother or whatever." And it's like that was that's such an amazing character insert, um, because Vonnegut was in Dresden during the firebombing and and survived by hiding in a slaughterhouse uh, with the rest of the other prisoners of war, and so it's very much a it blends autobiography and fantastical science fiction. Um, and it's in that particular Vonnegutian patois. Uh, it's another one I haven't read yet. Have you read uh, any Vonnegut? Yeah, we read Night we read Queen. Or Cat's Cradle? No, we read one for um, the podcast. Yeah. Night Queen, Queen of Night. Are you sure it wasn't Cat's Cradle? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Mother Night. Mother Night? Mother Night, yes. I have selected the graphic novel adaptation of this book from my May sci-fi book club through the library. Written or adapted by Ryan North of Dinosaur Comics, who was earlier on our top 10, our top 100 list. Correct. Um, yes, they 
the the old white men of my club keep asking if we can read a classic they've already read before. <laughs> so my compromise is, yes, we can, but I'm making you read the comic. That's fair. Uh, I've heard only amazing things about the adaptation, and Ryan North is great. So. Oh, yeah. No, I'm very excited about it. Um, yes, they get... They they are good sports, but they get a little cranky when I make them read modern authors they've never read before. Sure. Which, as far as I'm concerned, is the highest and best use for a book club, so they can, you know, deal with it. Also, I'm sure <laughs> um, modern authors that they haven't read before is anything post-2000. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, but no, I will probably read um, the OG version of this as well as the comic just so I can do some compare and contrast uh, discussion. I mean, it being Vonnegut, you can read it on a lovely afternoon sitting outside with a nice beer. Um, it will also then prevent you from being able to write anything for like a week without <laughs> slipping into his particular vernacular. So like, just like if you're going to write anything for your newsletter or whatever, um, buffer that out. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, rolling right along. Uh, we are now into our top 10. Uh, so thank you for that, that introduction point. Uh, for number nine, I have selected another video game, uh, the Mass Effect trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, Mass Effect, the first installment came out in 2008. Um, we have since had a fourth game, which we are not going to be talking about because it's not very good and kind of contributed to the death of Bioware. <laughs> So oh. I am, I am focused. Well, and also because Anthem was bad. Um, but anyway, original Mass Effect game, three games. Uh, you play as Commander Shepard, who you can play as either a male or a female. Uh, and you are basically an interstellar operative who has to face increasingly large scale threats. Uh, so in the first one, you are hunting down a traitor agent who by the end you find out is actually in service to a much larger enemy, uh, who by the time you are in the third game, um, the fate of the entire galaxy is at stake, which you are going to uh, preserve with the help of your ragtag team that you've been putting together over the course of three games. Mm -hmm. um, I started playing Mass Effect after the third game came out and everyone got mad. <laughs> Um, at the you, oh, everyone got mad at the third game. They did not get mad at you. Correct. Everyone gotcha. got mad at the third game, and I said, "Huh, this these games have inspired a lot of very strong feelings. They're probably worth checking out." <laughs> um, a hundred and twenty hours later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, knowing you, who did you choose as the romance option? I'm gonna let you guess. I'm gonna go Garus. Yes. Heck yeah. <laughs> I went with uh, uh, Tali. Uh, so did Bill. Yeah, there we go. Um, the thing about the Mass Effect games, which I think is what makes them so great and also what caused such wild um, negative uh, reception after the third one, is that through the whole, through all of the games, you are asked to make choices. And within each game, those choices have very real consequences. Frequently, they um, could result in the death of one of your teammates, and once people die, they're gone. Um, or they affect the resources that you have access to, or they affect how other people perceive you. It was um, also that era in video game where we were all into light side, dark side meters, so it would also impact your light side, dark side meter. Right, which 
again, affected what skills you had access to. Mm -hmm. If you were leaning too heavily on the dark side, you could not chart. Like, then you would eventually have options that were closed off to you because you had to be charming to do them. Right. And if you were too far gone one side, it's like, no, people don't like you. You You either can't charm or you can't intimidate. Right. Um, But so by the time we got to the third game... um, the, the, the game has an ending and people were mad that there was not more of a variety in the endings that reflected this myriad world of choices that we had all made um, throughout the course of these games. And this is my this is my feeling about them. Yes, having only three different scenarios that could possibly play out at the end of the third game does feel limiting, but also I feel very strongly that it did not invalidate my experience during the, uh, the previous three games. Like the choices I made mattered when I made them. Mm-hmm. And regardless of how that played out at the very end, they mattered to me in the moment and they mattered to the game that I was playing. Also, like I don't play these games multiple times I played it through once and was like, cool, got an ending. Okay. Oh, I've played, the fact, I've, yeah. I've played through about four times. Yeah, that first off, that tracks. Second off, like <laughs> the fact that there's only three endings, I'm like, I could not have told you how many. I, I knew there were a smaller number, but of course there wouldn't be hundreds of endings because that would have been impossible. Well, and I think part of the problem was that Bioware had intimated that 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 there would be hundreds of endings, mm. which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't see a universe in which that actually could have happened. So there was this perception that, like, something had been taken away from us because they didn't deliver on that. Release the Snyder Cut oh, of Mass up. Effect. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that it is a truly sprawling space opera told through a very human lens through characters that you truly come to love by the end yeah um there are characters that stay with you from the first game all the way through to the end there are characters that you meet once in the third game but still matter just as much to me Mm -hmm. it deals with like (laughs) is artificial intelligence equal to sentience like Mm -hmm. martin sheen isn't it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but it deals with like, like you find out that there is a race of aliens that hates another race of aliens because that second race effectively sterilized them because the Krogans were too prolific and too warlike. And whatever Morden is decided that they were not allowed to procreate as wildly anymore. So you get to fix that. Like that you get to fix these massive, galaxy spanning issues in your quest to save the world and by the end i think they do a really good job of truly making the shepherd character feel like a hero all right uh number eight on our list is uh a uh album not the last uh, of the albums there's one more for me this is the eponymous album 2011 bon iver bon uh, bon Iver's second album, Bon Iver, of course, is Eau Claire's own, Justin Vernon. Um, we all love the first album for Emma Forever Ago. I strongly considered having that in the place of this one because it has some of the best songs ever written on it. But Bon Iver, Bon Iver is really where he sorts, starts coming into his own. And I have very strong memories of listening to this, having recently moved to Milwaukee 
and having been into the first album being like what could his sophomore album be like uh, it also ends with beth slash rest which is a wild bananas and perfect bon Iver song um after this uh, also it has um holocene which is maybe my favorite bon Iver song um after this he goes into other albums which i love um 33 a million and i i which are much more in the experimental um, electronic sort of direction, and he got, uh, some people liked it, some people didn't like his, his third and his fourth album, um, I like all his stuff, but, but, like, albums one and two for Emma Forever Ago and Bon Iver, Bon Iver are, like, raw American indie folk from the late aughts and early teens, uh, perfectly encapsulated and distilled. And actually, I have no idea what your Bon Iver opinions are. I, my, my bone of air opinions are that I know my sister really likes them. Okay. You, I you, have none. I'm sorry. You have carbon I'm... leaf in your top 20. You need yes. to listen to the first two bone of air albums. Okay. Um, you can, I, 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 I give you an, uh, you know, I will grant you some indulgences to not listen to <laughs> albums three and four. Cause I don't think they would be up your alley sonically, but numbers one, like, uh, forever, forever ago and bon Iver, bon Iver are absolutely up your alley. I believe you. There's, there's a time in my musical like exposure. Yeah. Where if it wasn't on the garden state soundtrack, I didn't know it existed. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where I'm coming from. Right, and that's that's fine and all well and good, but if Garden State was made in the year 2011, they would have five Bon Iver songs on it instead of three Shin songs. So I'm sure that that's true. <laughs> Here, all right, I'm going to put some headphones over your head and say this album's going to change your life, and then I'm going to put on either for Emma or Bon Iver, Bon Iver. Fair. <laughs> uh, for my next pick, I need you all to know that Pete has tried to sabotage me. <laughs> Uh, at number seven, I have selected the Hannibal TV show, <laughs> which aired uh, from 2013 to 2015. Uh, Pete tried to get me to talk about the Ridley Scott movie. I refuse. <laughs> For good reason. It's bad. <laughs> um, we have talked about this on the show before. We have done homework for it. It is my favorite TV show. I think it is one of the best TV shows ever made. Um, I hope they never make any more. I aren't, aren't you excited about Clarice on Paramount Plus? Don't talk to me. <laughs> a How streaming dare you? a streaming service that we're all excited for. I'm so mad <laughs> at the existence of that. Oh man. <laughs> um, no, there was. I mean, it was canceled prematurely. It's incredible that they got the three seasons that they did. It's um, wild that they got even one season of this show. After um, after it was canceled, I was very much in the camp of Bring It Back. At this point, it has been long enough that I think I think doing a revival would be a disservice to it. Like I I would kind of rather let it rest in amber as it is than try and recreate the singular spirit of what they had. Mm-hmm. Um. Because, yeah, it really was not something that I had ever seen before or since on TV. Hard agree. Cosign everything. Brian Fuller is a genius who can never get more than two seasons of a show usually because the studios are like, what are you doing? It's so weird and expensive. And the fan base is like, it's so good. 
and then they cancel it. Please give me more. Yeah. Right. Um, Speaking of resting things in amber, number six. uh, What if 65 million years ago, a mosquito got trapped in some (laughs) sap from a tree and it became amber? And from that, we get Dino DNA. And yes, number six is Jurassic Park. Uh, the second or third Spielberg movie on this list, and um, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I saw this in movie in the movie theaters when I was in kindergarten. And was I too young? Maybe. Would I have been able to? Sur- like, I don't think I would have lived as a child if I hadn't seen this in theaters, because I was the classic kindergartner who could have told you everything about any dinosaur ever. Like, I knew more Latin and Greek names because of like Parasaurolophus and Quetzalcoatl and like all the rest of it like Archaeopteryx uh and the fact that those words just roll off my tongue is is radical um so yeah Jurassic Park is a great film uh, also I got to watch it with some uh, friends kids who were approximately my age and my brother's age when we saw it in theaters I'm like yeah it's fine <laughs> I I turned out okay uh they had the great take uh part way through during one of the scarier moments we paused it's like what do you think might happen next? Are you okay with this? And they're like, I think Batman's going to come and, and save them. And it's like, Perfect. well, first off, you don't know how movies work. Second off, better film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this was one I saw it on your list and I was like, of course. Yeah. Like, obviously this is a top 10 film. Yes. Uh, still holds up. It's great. Holds up incredibly. I, I was waiting to talk about this when you were talking about Jaws until we got to here. Spielberg learned via Jaws that it when you have a big scary monster uh, and you don't quite have the effects for it, you don't show it too often. Because, like, the T-Rex and even the Velociraptors, like, they're not on screen that often. Like, they're CGI, but, like, they're also very practical in many scenes. And I think a lot of what he learned from Jaws made Jurassic Park a good film. Because it's, like... It's maybe 50-50 CGI practical, and it might be even a higher percentage practical. Um, and that's what makes the movie hold up, because if it had been, if they'd been trying to do CGI in 1993 or whenever this was, it would have been awful. Like, if, if it was only CGI, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, number five is, I have His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, which we mm. truly do not need to spend any time Hold, on. No, um, I, I, we should probably talk for ten minutes about this. <laughs> i got more uh, thoughts <laughs> we did a whole episode about them go listen to that <laughs> uh before these two episodes i believe that was maybe one of our longest episodes yes i i think so too um but yes i it needed to be on here <laughs> it, needed, it needed to it, be on here <laughs> it, it, it needed to be on here it needed to be in the top 10 like if you wouldn't if you didn't have it on i would have been um horrified and confused and like calling bill like hey is there a <laughs> pod, your pod person pod in person. your house <laughs> <laughs> right. um yeah but yeah so go listen to our episode if you want to know the the deep and truest extent of my feelings about his dark materials <laughs> cosine uh number four is the 2002 mountain goats album tallahassee i am a big mountain goats fan uh they're a band um john darneal is the front man um there are many the mountain goats are incredibly prolific and have been around since the mid 90s when he was by himself recording on a uh, bad boom box with a lot of static and crackles tallahassee was his first like real studio album where it's not recorded on a boom box um it's 
polished, but not too polished. As he progressed into the 21st century, he got a lot more polish. Um, there's some albums where it's all, like, synthesizers. Uh, there's an album whose title, Martha, you were hella intrigued by, entitled In League With Dragons. Um, uh, but that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about Tallahassee and a concept album about the Alpha Couple. A couple he has written many songs about um, who are codependent alcoholics whose relationship is perpetually falling apart but can't ever quit each other because they're codependent. It's great. It's perfect. It includes the songs No Children, which some maniacs play at their wedding, um, which is a weird take, but uh, there we go. Because uh, it includes the, the lines, I hope you die. I hope we both die. Um, codependency in a bad relationship. Uh, but Mountain Goats are very much a, a hit or miss. I think I've talked about them enough in the show. We can wrap it up here. Uh, you either like them or you don't. And there we go. Yeah, they're not my favorites. Yeah. Um, very, much like Dylan, it's like, well, you might like his lyrics and hate his voice. And that's a incredibly acceptable take. Have you listened to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats yet? Of course I have. Like, okay. please, there was an album by Joseph, or there was a podcast by Joseph Fink and John Darneal called I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Obviously, I listened to both uh, <laughs> series immediately. <laughs> Just had to make sure. Strongly considered getting the bumper sticker. Uh, number three. I have selected The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle, mm -hmm. which is a fantasy novel that came out in nineteen sixty eight. We assigned this as an early homework. We did. And it was adapted into an animated film in nineteen eighty two, um, by Peter Beagle. Um, I had to do a lot of soul searching about whether or not I was going to include the book or the movie on here. I, I ultimately I wasn't sure which one you were referencing. I was not sure which one I was going to go with for a very long time. Ultimately, I went with the book because it started for me with the book. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is another one that this is I mean, it's my favorite book that's ever been written. Um, it's a fantasy journey about a unicorn who is afraid that she might be the last unicorn in the world. So she goes out, she leaves her forest for the first time in her centuries long life, uh, to go out into the world and find them. And the book is about all of the different things that befall her during this journey, including, um, spending some time as a human girl, uh, in disguise. Um, it's great. It's powerful. It's um, a really touching exploration of emotion. Uh, Molly Grew is an all-time character for me. Uh, she is a woman who is, is probably like mid-30s, but has lived a life that's caused her to age kind of past her years. So that when the unicorn finally shows up, her initial reaction is, why now? Why mm -hmm. would you come now when I'm old and used up? Um, you know, where were you? Where were you when I was new? Is mm -hmm. what she says. Mm -hmm. um, I I know many people who love the the movie of this and the the art style is so iconic. Like I can see just a picture of of the last unicorn. It's like yes, obviously that's mm -hmm. that's it. It's great. 
Um, but yeah, it also asks a lot of really great questions about what makes what makes our worth. Like, how do we derive our worth, and what does that say about us, um, and what does it say about the people who we maybe let dictate what our worth is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is it is definitely a book that means something different to me every time I read it. I've been reading it mm. regularly since I was like twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it continues to be it continues to resonate with me even as an adult. Nice. All right, number two. We are so close. Um, it. I would be hauled off to jail if I did not have a Star Wars on this list. Uh, that's because Star Wars was the first movie that I have a strong like obviously i was just talking about jurassic park probably seeing that in kindergarten and theaters strong memories of that strong memories weirdly of the mask um because whatever i was a child of the 90s um but star wars mm-hmm. i have very <laughs> strong memories of watching um return of the jedi in a friend of my parents uh who had just gotten a big screen tv and surround sound and being simultaneously terrified and fascinated like i could not look away but i could not stay in the room at the same time because it was too much because uh, i was probably i don't know four um and then also when i was in third grade the star wars young adult book series um or a star wars young adult at the time book series got me into reading in a serious way um the last or new jedi order i think it was called um so like star wars has been a critical part of my life since yeah i was five um Gonna have to be basic and pick the best one, which is The Empire Strikes Back. Um, Literally two weeks ago, for my wife's birthday, uh, we rented a movie theater where we could just watch anything that we had a streaming account for. So uh, the two of us and then, like, uh, my brother and his wife and then uh, four of our friends sat in a big luxury movie theater with no one else, separated, wearing masks and getting drinks and, like, food delivered to us. Uh, watching Empire Strikes Back on the big screen. And it was the first movie we'd seen in an entire year. And it was The Empire Strikes Back. And it was such a perfect film viewing experience. Um, And The Empire Strikes Back is such a perfect film. You kind of forget how good it is because it is so deeply saturated in pop culture. And, like, everyone knows it's Empire Strikes Back. It's good. But watching it, especially in a context like that, you're like, no. This film is great. Um, It's funny. It's fun. I'm about to be hideously annoying. Oh no. Please explain to me why please explain to me why. Why which one? Why is why is Empire Strikes Back considered to be the best Star Wars movie? Um This is so first off, as I I will also put Last Jedi up there as a very good one, and obviously A New Hope is great. Um I've recently rewatched Return of the Jedi. It's a little too Muppety. Um, the beats don't hit quite as well, and Marquand isn't quite as visually an innovative director as Lawrence Kasdan was. Um, a New Hope is obviously A New Hope, so it's on its own pedestal, but it's weirdly slow in some ways, and also you can see like the stitching, as it were. Like it's 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 a shoestring production, and it looks like it. Whereas so- by Empire, they got the full budget. I'm going to cut you off real quick. Also Yoda. Because here's the problem that I have. You love Attack of the Clones. That's the <laughs> real problem. How dare you? 
here's the problem that I have. I have never been a like quote unquote Star Wars person. Sure. Um. So when I watch The Empire Strikes Back, it is a fun adventure movie. Mm-hmm. But I truly don't understand why it gets talked about is as being in sort of its own echelon. Like I, I understand that it is pretty universally accepted as being the best star Wars movie, Mm -hmm. but I don't understand why. Like to me, it is, it is on par with either a new hope or less. um, Force awakens or last Jedi. Last Jedi. Yeah. The, the Ray and Johnson one. No. Um, the first one from the new one. Oh my god, why am I... Don't say Rise of Skywalker. Uh, no, s- shut yeah, up. Yeah, Force Awakens. No. Return of the Jedi. It's like, I oh. know the Jedi's in there. <laughs> no, it is... Like, those three those three movies are pretty interchangeable to me in terms of what they're accomplishing, how they're telling their story, what they're doing. Like, they are all fun movies. But if, so, I, having, having just rewatched Empire Strikes Back... I can tell you without a doubt that much like Rian Johnson's uh, The Last Jedi, the visual language of Empire Strikes Back is just so much more heightened. Um, it's also the one that introduces Yoda. So like that kind of hat, like I love Yoda. Um, so that gives it a little bit of a bump up. Um, there's, I, I've rewatched all three of these within the last, I don't know, I'm going to say five years. Um, and watching them, a New Hope is great and lovely and a, and a fun... Like, that's, to me, a fun adventure film. But you can feel the seams. You can feel, like, it's doing some good and amazing world building. But so much of what you think of as just Star Wars lore actually gets created in Empire Strikes Back. Um, the the tension between Han and Leia, like, low-key, between the filming of A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back... Uh, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher definitely slept together, and boy, that energy is on screen in Empire Strikes Back, and they have such fun frisson with each other. Um, it's it's a lot more. I don't know. It's 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 to me. It's it's sort of doing the best of both the the interpersonal relationships and the mythos and the visual language is the most advanced of all three films. Um, and then by, by the time you get to return of the Jedi, like uh, Mark Pond is just not the same director that Kasdan is. The script is just not quite at the same level. It's, I think it's trying to do a little too much. Ewoks are fun, but they're again, like it drags in ways that empire doesn't to me. Oh, um, see, I, I disagree. I think, I think return of the Jedi is more fun <laughs> On like every level. Okay. Well, the, and, and, and like empires. right, and like also well, and, it, it is it is the oldest nerd argument about which is better, Jedi or Empire, right? Well, and so and we I'm don't truly, need to rehash that. I'm truly not trying to be a pain in the ass. Oh, absolutely. Um, it is just it is such a universally acknowledged truth, and when I watch them, I'm just like, I need someone to explain it to me because I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, in my in my point of view, I think that um. The Last Jedi, the Ryan Johnson movie, I would actually posit is the best one because his is the only one I think that feels original. If I were watching all nine Skywalker saga Star Wars movies, 
with a total blank canvas, like ha- coming in with no nostalgia, no nothing. I might agree with you that Ryan Johnson's is like, oh, that's objectively the best. But I have 30, let's go 28 years of nostalgia baggage for the original trilogy, which is why I'm putting this on here rather than um, The Last Jedi. Sure, and maybe the answer is just that I'm not a Star Wars person. Like you, so, <laughs> your your sick movie was Lord of the Rings, as was mine in high school. In elementary school, we had Star Wars on VHS. So my sick movies was the Star Wars on VHSs. Um, you know, for uh, and also all the other nostalgia backstory I mentioned. Um, so well, it is just I- deeply coded in my DNA. And I will tell you, the other reason I'm about to be very, very annoying, I, back when we first started this 17 hours ago, Mm -hmm. um, I made you go first because when I looked at your list, I wanted my number one pick to be the number one on our list. Yes. Because I didn't want a Star Wars movie (laughs) to be number (laughs) one on our list. Well, I I have even worse news for you. Uh, You didn't just think that three hours ago. You thought that two weeks and three hours ago because you wanted my, my last pick to be number 100 so that your first pick could be number one (laughs) i did because having a star wars movie be number one on a list of the top 100 things in pop culture is so boring i it is so predictable i don't disagree i just had to do it like for me it's so deep encoded in my dna it's like yeah lord of the rings is in my top well i guess it's number 12 but it's almost in my top 10 and I guess it's in my top 10. It's in our top 12 and, and Star Wars has to be in there too. Uh, but what is your number yes. one, which I am co-signing because it is yeah. a great also, film. Also, I truly believe that my number one pick is the best movie that's ever been made. It's It also might be one of the best Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> you shut your mouth. <laughs> uh, we are all getting slap happy. So let us wrap this up. I have selected as our number one in our top 100 list of the pop culture artifacts the Studio Ghibli masterpiece, Princess Mononoke. A great film. I have spoken at length about what this movie taught me about film, we about animation. We assigned it as a homework very early on. I did, about storytelling. Uh, this movie changed the way that I consumed stories. It changed the way that I watched movies. It is a beautiful, eternally resonant piece of filmmaking. Um, and... Yeah, I I truly believe if I had to, if I had to make a hundred lists of the best of film, the best of animation, the best of whatever, uh, Princess Mononoke is going to be number one every single time. I was somewhat late to this, but I have strong memories of before ever watching this, uh, seeing the uh, probably VHS and then DVD cover in Blockbuster and just being like, what even it's a cartoon but it looks like it's for adults and it looks like it's a dude with a lightsaber on the cover but he's got like he's fighting a wolf or something like uh yeah it's also a perfect film mm-hmm. we we have thrown thrown those words out around a lot uh <laughs> over this past 127 hours um but yeah it is it is truly flawless Thank you all for sticking with us uh, through this incredible marathon of a podcasting event. (laughs) Uh, We have been doing this for 101 episodes. Um, We are going to continue doing it. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this and to our past episodes and to our future episodes. 
If you would like to follow us on social media, we are at DYDYH Podcast everywhere. Uh, you can also listen to our sister show, Love Ya, which debuts on alternating Wednesdays from these episodes, where Marin, Pete's wife, and I talk about either a romantic comedy or a teen movie uh, in great detail. Last week, we watched uh, Love Wedding Repeat, the Netflix original. Uh, and next week, we are going to be talking about uh, the map of tiny perfect things on Amazon Prime. My joke about Love Wedding Repeat was that it was the uh, sequel to Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> it <laughs> AKA is. AKA Live Die Repeat. It is truly not as much of a Groundhog Day movie as I wanted it to be. Yes. It was a good um, episode. I'd recommend people listen to it. Thank you. Uh, you can follow me on social media on all the places at Magical Martha, including my newsletter, which I write whenever I feel like it, which you can find at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. I uh, don't know how much longer I'm going to be on Tiny Letter because it sounds like they're uh, the people who run that have been making some not great choices mm. related to uh, TERFs and their platform. So mm. we'll see how that goes. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. We will be back in two weeks when we will be talking about the New Testament. Bit of a belated Easter episode. Uh, we have done the Old Testament media, and now we are about to do New Testament, although having talked to Pete a little bit, it sounds like when we say New Testament, what we really mean is the crucifixion story. <laughs> um, but I... I mean, it's, be... Martha, it's either that or we both just do shrooms on air and talk about revelations, so... Well, I mean... That's attract. that's for the Patreon subscribers. We can attract <laughs> God, if only. Um, but so I have selected the um, twenty eighteen. Thank you. The twenty eighteen John Legend live NBC musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, Pete, what have you selected for us? I was hemming and hawing over this, and I'm going with a movie that I haven't seen. So that's my caveat. I'm, uh, which, which is something we don't like to do, but I, I'm, I'm interested in watching this, and I think it will work well. I am going to go with the, uh, the 1988 uh, Scorsese movie, The Last Temptation of the Christ, starring Willem Dafoe as the Jesus. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be very clear on all that because it's easy to confuse the title with the Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie, uh, which I have no interest in watching um so yes uh 88 scorsese last temptation of christ um also just sidebar i'm looking at a wikipedia list of new testament um media mm -hmm. and it like 90 percent of it is just the crucifixion story like, because what else are we gonna like i it was this or life of brian you know which actually would have been pretty funny but also outside i think the scope of the content of, of the new testament sure. <laughs> uh but thank you all so much for listening uh this has been a lot of fun um and we will see you in a couple of weeks enjoy doing your homework class just oh you did talk you did talk about your personal 
Yeah. Social media. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. I have to go to bed. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. It is so they're they're about to come out with a remastered version of all three of these games for the current generation of consoles. Mm. Uh, they are not putting it on the Switch. That was going to be my question. It which was going to be followed up with, of course, they're not putting it on the Switch. Which I find both incredibly rude to me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's but, a direct attack. Well, but also if they put it on the Switch, you would never see me again. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Podcast is over. Martha is playing Mass Effect. That's my life. You can follow Martha's Twitch stream at. (laughs)